Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Guys, we have a fantastic episode today with Vitalik Buterin. We talk about the future of Ethereum, the rise of alternative layer ones as well. A few things to watch out for as you listen to this episode. The first is we talk about the Ethereum roadmap from the guy who actually helped create Ethereum, uh, how far we are in the Ethereum roadmap as well. That's number two. Number three, what will Ethereum look like when it's all said and done? How long will that take? Number four, can centralized alternative layer ones become decentralized in the long term or will they remain centralized? Number five, what does Vitalik make of the term Ethereum maximalists? Number six, will crypto actually be able to solve the big scale global problems in the 2020s in this decade that we're in. David, this was a fantastic episode. They're all fantastic with Vitalik. I hope folks listen to each and every single episode with him. What did you think about this episode? I think this is the perfect episode to kick off 2022. This is a hybrid podcast. One side of it is very granular and detailed. That's the first half where we talk about the Ethereum roadmap, just contextualizing and grounding people in what's left with Ethereum. Some of the obvious stuff comes up first, like the merge and sharding, but then there's a bunch of other things as well. And we talk about those things and why we need them and what they do and what they do for Ethereum both now and into the long term. And then we actually fold that conversation into the conversation of the growth of the alternative layer ones. And we talk about how the first half of 2021 was more or less Ethereum's show. Ethereum, just massive success in the first half of 2021. And then the alternative layer ones came on the scene. And now there's this growing ecosystem of many different chains, all doing more or less similar things with different design structures. And a lot of them have chosen centralization as their competitive advantage, if you will. And so getting Vitalik's take on that in relation to the Ethereum roadmap, because some of the things we talk about in the roadmap actually lends itself directly towards how some of these centralized layer ones can actually migrate into a long-term, sustainable, robust ecosystem. So Vitalik not only is unpacking the Ethereum roadmap, but also proposing a roadmap for alternative layer ones to actually be successful into the long term. Uh, And so I I really enjoyed that conversation. And then, of course, just zooming out and grounding ourselves, not just inside of the crypto industry, but inside of the world at large. Where are we in the 2020s as humans, as crypto people? What's up with the 2020s and what can we do about it? So just a bunch of great conversations to really kick off this. Hopefully, Ryan, what is another great year of Bankless Podcast? Yeah, I think that's been top of mind for me, David, because like going to this decade, we're just one year into this decade, but we have nine more to go. And I'm a little worried, like I'm a little concerned about where this decade might leave us. But crypto is the thing that that keeps me hopeful. And seeing Ethereum's roadmap laid out like this also makes me hopeful and bullish on Ethereum. I've never seen Ethereum's roadmap as clearly articulated and stated. Vitalik gives us a pretty precise definition of like percent complete. You'll have to stay tuned to the episode to catch that listener. And we get into the details of what Ethereum is going to look like when it's all grown up. And it's very exciting. And this is breakthrough technology. It's one of the, the greatest social coordination inventions that humanity has ever devised. We talked about this idea of the crypto renaissance. I think Ethereum is a pillar technology to usher us into this crypto renaissance. 
And we dissect that a little bit with Vitalik too. Having a precise and concrete roadmap is actually a luxury in the Ethereum world. And this is not something that we could have talked about in this depth and with this much future in mind up until now. So I'm really excited to just unpack all of the Ethereum roadmap with you, the listener. And what I'm also excited for you, the listener, is to do is to like the video, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to subscribe. If you are listening to the podcast, there is visual components on this. It shouldn't be critical, but it might be useful if you just want to pull this up on YouTube. Works either way. And of course, while you're there, make sure to like and subscribe. So let's go ahead and get right into the future of the Ethereum roadmap and the rise of the alternative layer ones right after we get to some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Hey, Bankless listeners, at the end of this podcast, Ryan and I unpack this whole entire episode in our debrief. This is something that we only give towards our premium subscribers. It's the only bit of uh, podcast content that we reserve for premium subscribers to Bankless. But since it's such a good podcast and it's also the first episode of 2022, we've decided to release this one for everyone just to allow people to get a taste of what they are missing if they are not subscribed to Bankless. So at the end of the podcast, podcast, or if you're watching on YouTube in a separate YouTube video, there is a 30-minute debrief where Ryan and I unpack the episode, talk about the strategies for alternative layer ones, talk about how we're all getting to this end game state that we are apparently all converging on, and unpack the other you know, crypto topics that we have seen in the latter half of 2021. So stay tuned for that. It's coming at the end of the podcast, and it's also a separate video on the Bankless YouTube And if you want more of these debriefs, subscribe to Bankless because we do one for every single podcast that comes out. Bankless premium subscribers have a private RSS feed that they get these every single week. And so if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to Bankless and you will get that every single week automatically downloaded to wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers, and I hope you enjoyed the debrief. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Over 250 projects have already deployed on Arbitrum, and Arbitrum's DeFi and NFT ecosystems are growing rapidly. Arbitrum increases Ethereum speed by orders of magnitude for a fraction of the cost of the average gas fee. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of decentralization and security. If you're a developer who wants low gas fees and instant transactions for your users, visit developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building your application on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps or NFT projects building on Arbitrum. Many of your favorite apps are already live, with many more coming over soon. You can find these apps at portal.arbitrum.one, and you can bridge your assets over to Arbitrum using bridge.arbitrum.io in order to experience DeFi and NFTs the way it was always meant to be. Fast, cheap, and friction-free. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure you're getting the best possible price on your trade. And that's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your trade across all the various liquidity sources in Ethereum. And is also operational on Polygon, Avalanche, Binance Smart Chain, and other chains. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pools the liquidity for me in a single, easy-to-use platform and allows me to make limit on-chain orders so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. So when you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. 
input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce our next guest who requires no introduction, really. Been on the podcast multiple times. Vitalik Buterin is on Bankless today. He's the creator of Ethereum, writer at Vitalik.ca, a popular Bankless guest. We have a number of episodes with Vitalik. Welcome back, Vitalik. How are you doing? Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, we want to talk about a few things today with you. The Ethereum roadmap, of course, the rise of alt-1s. That was something that happened last year. The end game. This is an article you wrote called The End Game, which chronicles, I think, or describes maybe an end game situation for uh, all blockchains, all layer ones. But we also have the privilege of recording this toward the end of the year. So we can't pass up an opportunity to talk about some reflections for 2021 just to get us kickstarted. So what did you think of 2021? for crypto, like high level, okay? A lot of people say it was a very good year for crypto. I think they're mainly talking about prices. Maybe they're also talking about adoption and mainstream attention. What are your thoughts on 2021? Was it a good year for crypto? What'd you think about it? Mm, I definitely think um, it was a great year for adoption and for mainstream attention. Um, I mean, the rise of NFTs was definitely something uh, really fascinating to see. And I think it's uh, brought a lot of people into the crypto space that um, were not, uh, would not have uh, gone into it before. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, things like, uh, it, well, at least to me, like blockchains are about creating these innovative new um, ways to organize society. And in some ways to me, like what's happening with artists uh, being able to sell NFTs really is a realization of that spirit. Because like we actually are giving uh, people who are creating art new business models. We're uh, giving the uh, creators of this uh, thing that's uh, very valuable, but that uh, often has a hard time getting uh, business models um, a new way to actually get funding. Um, so that's uh, something that's... Uh, been very interesting to uh, and uh, exciting for me. Um, the rise of DAOs is uh, definitely also interesting and exciting. Um, we've been seeing more and more DAOs that are actually doing lots of interesting things, experimenting with uh, different governance algorithms, um, projects like CityDAO that are actually trying to you know, do things in the physical world. Um, so that has all been fun. Um, the progress that we have seen in layer two scaling, I think, has been really amazing. Like we've actually, I think, over the course of this year, really seen layer twos go from theory to practice. Um, you know, at the beginning of this year, there were only like one or two layer twos on mainnet and they either only support, well, pretty much all only supported a couple of applications. And now we have this thriving ecosystem and people are really experiencing what a layer two Ethereum looks like firsthand. Um, so lots of progress on adoption and lots of progress on tech. Definitely lots of uh, happy things to report this year. Vitalik, one thing I've gathered while being in this space for a number of years, I got in in 2017, Ryan got in a little bit before me, but I hear all these crazy cerebral conversations that happened in the Bitcoin space and the very early Ethereum space from you know 2011 to 2015 and just like about the, you know, what the possibilities of crypto could be. And I'm from my perspective, my limited perspective, because I've only been here for so long, is that 2021 was 
a year where so many of these high in the sky, like very, very cerebral uh, possibilities of crypto actually started to happen. Like NFTs and unique tokens mm-hmm. were a conversation very, very early, as well as DAOs, even though we didn't call them DAOs way back when. Uh, would you say that 2021 was the year that crypto actually started to unlock some of these early theorized use cases that were you know, only conversations back five years ago? I would definitely say so. Fantastic. <laughs> So Vitalik, let's talk about Ethereum for a minute. And, um, you know, one of these days we're going to have you on Bankless and actually uh, not talk about Ethereum, maybe not talk about crypto, because I know you have tons of varied interests and a lot of insights on many topics. But today is not that podcast, okay? <laughs> we want to talk about Ethereum. <laughs> um, going into 2022 in, in particular, so when listeners hear this, it'll be the first week of January 2022. We want to talk a little bit about the roadmap for Ethereum moving forward. But before we do, Let's talk about the progress Ethereum made last year in 2021. So what were some of the main accomplishments, milestones? I know you mentioned layer two. That's probably chief among them. Are there any others at the protocol level? Yeah. So I think if we focus on layer one, as some of the big things are, one is that the beacon chain just proved itself. It's uh, turned from being this very early thing into an increasingly mature ecosystem. Um, it also had its first hard fork, the Altair hard fork, which of course added the uh, kind of basic scaffolding that we need to have light client support. And it was also just the first ever beacon chain hard fork, which is uh, an important trial run for the merge. Um, so the next uh, beacon chain hard fork and most likely the next um, execution chain hard fork will actually be the merge. Um, so that's exciting. Um, speaking of the merge, uh, we also have test nets for the merge now. The Kintsugi testnet uh, launched um, a couple of uh, weeks ago. And of course, the Kintsugi testnet was not even the first testnet of the merge. There were a couple of other smaller ones that have been running for a couple of months. But Kintsugi has, is uh, one that is uh, much bigger than before, many more participants than before, um, more extensive than before. Uh, anyone could go and participate. And I even got some uh, Kintsugi ETH from the Kintsugi faucet um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that has also been, uh, I think, a lot of great progress. Um, a lot of uh, just interesting infrastructure projects uh, that have been coming of age. Um, so Proof of Humanity has matured a lot and it's uh, been seeing a lot of usage. Sign in with Ethereum has uh, been seeing a lot of adoption and that just like went from i think an idea that a few people were thinking about to something that lots of people were excited about starting to adopt and use over the last few months um what cross layer two bridging still in its infancy but um much better than uh, what it was a year a, a year ago which is basically not existing at all but account abstraction. Um, there are um, test net versions of ERC four three three seven. This is something that hasn't really gotten into the public discourse yet, but it's uh, moving forward quietly. A lot of progress there. Um, so, you know, lots of small things. Um, lots of uh, progress on uh, you know the various spec items that haven't been released yet, but that uh, we're going to talk about through uh, the rest of this episode probably. Just um like. A whole bunch of like really meaningful progress on, on I think, pretty much uh, all of the yeah, big big things that we care about. And by the way, for people listening on YouTube, this is the testnet you were referring to, Vitalik, uh, I believe. So what are we looking at? So this is uh, Kintsugi, which is the newest. Is this the Beacon Chain Plus? Mm-hmm. Like, 
Ethereum one sort of you know testnet. This is yes, basically this the merge. This is a testnet of the merge. Okay, um, testnet so, of the merge. So, like, what can people do here? Is this mainly for developers, or is there anything? Is there? Ian, you know, they can connect. They can connect nodes. They can uh, become stakers. They uh, can, um, you know, launch contracts and trade coins around. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's test. This is it, though. This is right. this is the merge, right? This is the thing that is going to be put in production. So, what has to happen between now and? Like the time the merge goes through, is it just a lot of testing, a lot of you know validation? Yeah, definitely a lot of testing and auditing and all of that. Um, the uh, the one piece that I'm aware of that's like still the furthest from being certain is how clients would sync after the merge. Um, ju- basically the uh, the the problem is that the way that proof of work um, syncs and the way that pro- uh, the way that proof of stake syncs are a bit different from each other, um, and so there's a bit of engineering that needs to be done to put the two together. Uh, but this is something that people have already been aware of for a while, and so there's um, a lot of things in progress and be and uh, uh, being implemented. Um, so I think uh, no, so far things are mostly going smoothly. Taking another opportunity to zoom out, the Ethereum protocol has developed throughout 2021, but there's also what I like to call meta development, which is defining and understanding the long-term roadmap of Ethereum to an actual concrete specific detail. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in Ethereum's history, there wasn't all that much with regards to details in the future. Uh, I remember in 2017, I didn't really know what was going to be happening next in Ethereum six months out. But it seems to be that the meta development of Ethereum has gotten a lot more robust. And partly that's illustrated by that infographic that we're going to pull up here in a second. But Vitalik, Ethereum changes every single year. 2015 Ethereum is different than 2016 Ethereum and, and so on and so forth. How would you contextualize overall with the grand Ethereum vision for what it wants to be and then also where it is in 2021. How far along are we? Are we like 60% of the way there? Are we 40% of the way there? And then if we could just like uh, give a grade towards just the progress made so far, how would you evaluate it? I would say around 50. Um, I'd be willing to go past six to go past 60 once uh, the merge is fully complete, and I'd be willing to you know go past 80 once we have a full sharding implementation. Um, but I think, uh, these, like, those two biggest items are definitely getting closer and closer, but they're not yet in the real rear view mirror. That's really cool. Over 50%. We're getting close then. Um, very neat. So let's talk about what's coming. David uses term, you know, I guess meta development, the roadmap. Roadmap to me, at least this year, for Ethereum has never been clear, which is super cool. And you put out this, uh, infographic on Ethereum's birthday. Sorry, not its birthday, the Beacon Chain launch birthday, December 1st, uh, that kind of highlighted progress across a number of different work streams. So I'm going to go through those really quick at the high level, and then let's take some time to talk about each of them. So, and by the way, I love these nicknames that, you know, you used, you christened, uh, they have a nice flow to them. The first is the merge. The second is the surge. The third is the verge, the purge, then the splurge. So these are five different work streams. The merge is really when proof of stake comes about and proof of work finally dies. The surge is about scalability, particularly for rollups. We'll talk about that. The verge is all around stateless clients, making Ethereum nodes easier to run. The purge has a bit of technical debt elimination, but also eliminating historical data if you want to find out more. And the splurge, of course, any good splurge is you know all about the extras, all about the goodies. And so we got some goodies on the roadmap as well. I'm going to show that infographic as we talk about each of these areas. 
But like to me, the theorem roadmap has really never been clear. And maybe we could address these things one by one, Vitalik. So let's talk about, and I think they're kind of in order maybe of um, how soon they're going to happen. Is that the case? So the merge is going to happen first? Um, no, so the, so time is left to right. Okay, time is left to right. Um, so every, so there's there's no top up to down top uh, time dimension. Okay. Hence why the time arrow at the top goes left to right. Okay, very good. Uh, so everything is parallel. But we, we should say the merge is probably going to be the thing that's that's happening first. Right. Uh, and maybe we should start with that. So tell us about the merge. Sure. Uh, so the merge is uh, the same thing that the merge has always been. It's the you know, full transition away from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, so there has um, actually been a lot, there's a lot of uh, stuff that has already been done for a proof of stake that's uh, in the kind of uh, what's already behind us column to the left. Um, so the beacon chain already exists. There's already been a warm-up fork. Proof of stake already has light client friendliness. Um, but what's left to actually get to the merge, right? Um, so the most recent thing that was finished is the full specification of the merge process. Um, so the specification, not just of what post-merge Ethereum looks like, but even of how the transition process uh, works. Uh, so how the process works of like actually changing from one to the other, what is the, the final proof of work block going to be? How is the first proof of stake um, execution block going to point to that proof of work block? What happens during edge cases? Like what if the chain reorgs right in the middle of that? Um, so all of that, that's the, the spec. Um, so this exists. So, so that's what these test sets have been running. That's what Kintsuki has been running. Um, so full merge specification, test networks in progress, fork choice improvements. Um, so basically there just have been a few bugs that have been discovered in the fork choice rule. This is the yeah, function that nodes use to determine like which block is the head block if there are multiple competing blocks based on all of the votes that all the different validators have made. Um, and this is just like adding some armor to make it more robust against certain kinds of attacks. Um, so once that's done, um, then the yeah, merge uh, can happen, right? And once the merge happens, then you know no more proof of work, right? Um, and so then that's the merge. Um, after the merge, we have the post-merge hard fork. Um, the most important feature of the post-merge hard fork is just enabling withdrawals, right? So the merge itself, just to keep it simple, does not enable withdrawals. Um, but the post-merge hard fork, it, uh, which there is a spec for enabling withdrawals, um, but the, this is something that will actually needs to be done a little bit later. Just to be clear, Vitalik, this is about withdrawals for beacon chain ether depositors and validators. Correct. This isn't about tokens or anything else, right? Exactly. So if you threw your 32 ethan and you're a validator, then once the post-merge hard fork happens, you will be able to withdraw the ETH and the rewards and uh, bring it back into the execution layer. Will everyone be able to withdraw all at once, or how is that managed? There is a queue. Um, so if uh, lots of people start withdrawing, then lots of withdrawals will have to wait. Okay. And so to be clear, Vitalik, those are happening in two different hard forks, right? Two different stages here. Yes. Any any idea on how far they will be apart? Will these be like months apart, weeks apart? Realistically, like maybe six months. Okay, six months apart. So that's the merge. And that means proof of work is gone effectively. We just have proof of stake. What does this mean for the typical user or the typical DeFi application? Will they have to do anything? Do they have to click a button in MetaMask that says like upgrade to uh, merged ETH? I mean, they'll have to upgrade to merged MetaMask, but they will not have to upgrade their Ether or their applications. Um, so from the point of view of applications, like it just it's just like any of the hard forks that we've already been through. Effectively, users don't have to do right. anything at all. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's the merge. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about next. By the way, with the merge, we haven't mentioned, of course, all the proof of work issuance goes away as well, right? So that's says something over 4% or so, and that is now gone. No more proof of work issuance. No more miners on Ethereum for the first time. That's going to be an interesting state to be in. That all happens at the time of the first merge. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about the second, which is the surge. What's the surge all about? The third is uh, scalability increases for rollups uh, through sharding. Uh, so basically, rollups by themselves are a layer two scaling solution. And what roll the way rollups work is that computation and storage go off chain, but data stays on chain, right? Um, and this allows um, transactions to happen much more cheaply than they would if everything is done on layer one. Um, but it's they still uh, inherit the security of layer one, right? So rollups are this compromise that basically gives us a lot more efficiency than layer one with all of the security that um, users are used to. Um, and it's kind of the best combination of properties among all of the different uh, layer two solutions that have been explored. Um, and it's also, I think, the only one that like really properly supports um, like full EVM scripting, right? Like state channels, for example, uh, they're like they they support payments. They can support a few applications, but like you can't easily stick Uniswap in a channel, for example. But you know you can stick Uniswap in a rollup. Um, so uh, about a year and a half ago, I think there was this uh, document that I published called the Rollup Centric Roadmap, where basically say like, look, rollups are realistically the scaling that's going to come the fastest. And so, and, and we know that rollups work. The, the theory behind them is extremely well established. So let's simplify the scaling roadmap by uh, kind of re-architecting the scaling roadmap around being uh, based around rollups as much as possible, right? So the main thing that we get out of that is that instead of the sharding uh, that Ethereum has been planning on having all along uh, being sharding of everything, so sharding of execution, sharding of accounts, sharding of smart contracts, sharding is just sharding of data, right? So it's this very limited form of sharding that basically says, all we're going to do is we're going to have this kind of data layer, this sort of public billboard that people can stick up to... Um, around two megabytes a second worth of data on. Uh, and when they do this, um, then the blockchain guarantees that that data is publicly available. Um, it guarantees that the data actually was published and that nobody is withholding it, but it does not try to interpret the data, right? Now, who tries to interpret the data? That's the job of the rollups, right? So the layer one just handles data and it's the rollups job to kind of convert this highly scalable data plus the little bit of computation that the Ethereum blockchain gives you into a lot of computation. And we've talked about optimistic rollups and we've talked about ZK rollups before, right? So I think uh, people are going to know roughly how this happens. Um, but like the core insight here, right? It basically is that if you sort of lean on rollups as this machine for converting data into execution, then sharding just needs to support data and sharding can become much simpler. Um, like one example way in which sharding becomes simpler is that, uh, we, the sharding design does not need to have any fraud proofs, right? So 
the sharding designs that we were thinking about earlier, where we actually have execution inside of the shards, like we had to deal with this question of like, well, what happens if one of the shard blocks is invalid, right? Like, does someone have to submit a fraud proof to uh, show that it's invalid? And what if there is one of these fraud proofs, then does that mean that the entire chain has to get reverted? And there's like all of this complexity that we have to deal with, right? But with uh, sh data sharding, like there's, there's no such thing as an invalid block. All there is is there is an unavailable block. Um, and so we don't need fraud proofs. Like there's just a lot of machinery in terms of managing state, doing cross shard transactions, just all of this complexity that can just completely go away. Um, and so the protocol can be really elegant and simple. And it's Rollup's job in to actually convert this into this kind of high performance, I mean, very parallelized, but very secure EVM ecosystem. Um, so what this actual roadmap is, right? So we have uh, the, uh, basically four stages here is basically just adding more and more of this data. Um, right. So step one, short term call data expansion. This is if something like EIP 44, uh, could be something like EIP 4488, could be something like EIP 4490, like just adding more data space in the short term, uh, to make rollups cheaper. Then we have basic sharding, um, and steps two and three, like actually you like add on kind of full on the, like the full on sharding specification, right? So they add on this idea that you have these transactions and these transactions, um, that can contain a huge amount of data. Um, except at the beginning, like we might do, a, we might compromise a bit and we might say, well, um, you know, everyone still has to download all of this data, but it's just some dedicated space to store the data. Um, and so we're kind of easing into the sharding model and rollups can kind of re-architect themselves to actually take advantage of this data. And then when we go from a few shards to many shards, like that's when we actually kind of take off the training wheels and we say, like now, finally, we don't need to have any node downloading everything, right? Like we just rely on communities, we rely on data availability sampling, we rely on all of these other technologies to verify that the data exists without requiring any single node to download everything individually. And then the fourth one, um, data availability sampling, this is this uh, really sophisticated technology that clients can use to basically check that all of the data has been published by randomly checking like ra just random pieces without having to download all of it, right? So it's like first add data, then add more data, then add even more data. And then near the end, we start adding more and more armor uh, to make sure that we have like both the scalability and the security. So more and more data and rollups get cheaper and cheaper. And from a user's point of view, like users, once again, they don't really have to notice anything. The only thing where users have to do is they just have to move the, their activity from layer one to layer two at the point when they're comfortable with it, right? And then once they've moved everything to layer two, then all that they see is that layer two just keeps on getting cheaper and then it gets cheaper again and then it gets cheaper again. Um, so that's the surge. And so when you say the layer twos just get cheaper and cheaper, are they also getting faster at the same time? Are those hand in hand? D uh, define faster. Uh, faster execution times. Well, so the word faster, like I think there, there's two kinds of fast, right? There's like latency and there's bandwidth. Um, so latency is like how many seconds do you have to wait for even one transaction to confirm? And then bandwidth is like how many transactions per second. So none of, none of what's happening in the surge improves latency. Uh, so, so far, all of this, like, you know, you still have your 12 second slot times. Uh, the, the slot times might even have to increase a bit. Um, to uh, to handle sharding, so it might have to go up from like 12 to 16. 
Uh, but what's going to go up a lot is bandwidth, right? So like the Ethereum blockchain today can handle 15 to 40 transactions a second. Um, rollups today, if they add proper compression, can go up to 1,500 to 4,000 transactions a second. And then rollups with sharding can go up to 100,000 transactions a second. The reason why they get cheaper is basically supply and demand, right? If the chain can handle more transactions, then that means that there's more space and you don't have like all of these users that are competing for the same very small number of slots. And so the transaction fees that every single user has to pay just go down by a huge amount. Like that's basically where the uh, cheaper comes from. So it's it's cheaper because it's a higher bandwidth. By the way, this bandwidth thing, I think a brilliant site to see this is um, ETPS. I don't know if you've seen this before, Vitalik. Mm, mm-hmm, I have, yeah. It kind of showcases the uh, the bandwidth of Ethereum when you take into account this is Polygon, but also all of the other you know optimistic rollups in rollup chains as well. Ethereum currently does sixty five transactions per second if you add all of that together, and you know in this block it's eighty seven transactions per second. And what you're saying is basically that number will go up and up and up and up. For higher and higher and higher with the uh, the surge. Exactly. And what would this mean for anyone who is still living a life on the layer one with the expansion of the number of shards and also the size of shards? Does that mean L1 gas fees are going to come down or what's the deal with that? I mean, in the short term, maybe, but I think realistically in the long term, using L1 is just going to keep getting more and more expensive. Um, So you like as a user, I think like you do need to be prepared for the fact that Ethereum already is transitioning away from being a layer one centric ecosystem toward being a layer two centric ecosystem. Um, I like today the gains that you can make from switching to layer two are like maybe only five X, but you know, in the future there'll be 10 X and then there'll be 50 X and then there'll be a thousand X. Um, so eventually all activity is going to have to transition to being layer two. Eventually even bridging from one layer two to another layer two is something that will mostly have to happen without layer ones. Um, and this is a change that users will have to get used to. And I think it's a change that some users are starting to get used to already. Um, but you know, if they can do it, then everything other than that is going to be fairly under the hood for them. With regards to the shard size and shard count, mm-hmm. I want to unpack this one a little bit because we have a couple phases inside of the surge where first we add in sharding in the first place and just a few shards, and then we add more shards. But from what I've gathered from other people's writings, Polynias and some other ETH client devs, Long term, there actually could be no cap on both the size and the number of shards, so long as the resources that Ethereum has to its availability is sufficient. Uh, Is that true? And a couple of questions to follow up on that. How will we know when we're ready to add more shards? And is there an ultimate final number of like, we are going for this many shards with this size? Or is this a number that's always going to be dynamic in Ethereum's future? So I actually wrote an article about this like six months ago. I mean, if you go to the post called uh, The Limits uh, to Blockchain Scalability, I think. So sharding gets around a lot of the limits, the scalability of uh, non-sharded blockchains that I talk about above. Um, so the first limit I mentioned is uh, quadratic sharding, right? Which basically is this idea that like it's the, the beacon chain is going to contain headers of shard blocks and then you're, and then you, so you have the beacon chain block and then you have shard blocks. You only have two levels. It's uh, theoretically possible to make blockchain designs that have three levels or five block levels or a dynamic number of levels. Um, and like I think. I remember the Ton network, for example, like they were trying to do exponential sharding and like they had this dream of going up to two to the power of 92 shards eventually. Um, like, and my opinion is that that stuff is 
possible in theory, but in practice, going beyond two levels is just like too hard and it adds too much complexity. And so it's not worth it. Um, so Ethereum is, is staying with quadratic. Um, but there's other reasons why, um, at scalability going too high becomes too risky. And like, there we go. So what are these risks? Excellent. So keep going down. Um, so basically what I talk about here is that as the data uh, capacity of the chain increases, you, you get this property that because no single user down is going to be downloading or processing the entire chain, you get a minimum number of users that you're counting on uh, to ensure that the chain continues to be secure, right? Um, so like, I guess one analogy of this is that if you imagine like a blockchain is one city and you imagine you start off with a blockchain that's just a small town. How small is the town? The town is so small that if you make one guard tower and you make the guard tower tall enough, then you can have one security guard and the one security guard can watch the entire border of the town and make sure that no attackers get in, right? So that's like an unscalable blockchain. Now imagine you start scaling the town up more and more. Um, eventually you get to the point where like you can't have one guard tower in the center. You have to switch to having guards on the walls and you need multiple guards on the walls. Well, once you get to a town that's like, let's say, um, I don't know, like has a hundred thousand people, then, you know, you might have a wall, your wall might be 10 kilometers long and like you might need, let's say 50 guards, right? If you have less than 50 guards, then the guards can't see far enough. And so someone might, an attacker might slip through in between two of the guards. Um, if, uh, you, the city expands further and then the city is like, say as big as Manhattan, then you're going to need like a thousand guards, right? Um, and you know, if you don't have your thousand guards, then, um, you know, there, like, an attacker might slip through in between two of the guards and like the, the security of the town might break. Um, so the bigger the town gets, the, you start getting, like, you start committing to an assumption about how many security guards are you sure that you can, ha that, uh, that you're always going to have. Now, the good news is about, about a yeah, blockchain here, right, is that with data availability sampling, every user of a blockchain is one of these guards, right? Every user is kind of randomly watching a random portion of this sort of metaphorical wall. Um, and every, and so every user is helping to check that, like, there aren't any unavailable, uh, uh, like, data chunks that are getting through. Um, but, like, whatever your scalability level is that you're committing to, you're also committing to saying you were def we guarantee that we're definitely going to have at least 100 users or say at least 1000 users active at all times, right? So, like, that is a, uh, that is an assumption, right? And uh, the higher your scalability gets, the stronger that assumption gets. Like, once you start talking about blockchains that have like gigabytes per second, you're basically committing to saying, we are always going to have hundreds of thousands of active nodes. Um, so if your chain suddenly becomes much less popular, that's, that suddenly becomes a security risk. Um, if everyone suddenly like switches to using more centralized clients, that's a risk not for them. That becomes a security risk for the entire network, right? So security just becomes more and more uncertain. Um, and also your ability to guarantee the availability of history also becomes more and more uncertain, right? So like, for example, the Ethereum roadmap, right? It basically, the, the parameters that we have right now is, uh, I think it was about 2.6 megabytes per second of uh, blockchain data, um, I think. Um, and uh, 2.6 megabytes per second, there is a 31 million seconds in a year. Um, so that's going to be 90 million, meg uh, 90 million megabytes a year. So that'll be somewhere around like eight, um, 85, uh, 
terabytes per uh, per year. Um, so, you know, like there's already that's like already a lot of terabytes that that uh, every year that are being uh, added to the blockchain, right? And people have to store all of that. Now, if you crank that up by another factor of a hundred, then we're talking about like eight petabytes per year. Right. And so the higher and higher you go, the we the, the higher and higher the risk there is that just people are gonna like get tired of like all of this data and there's just you're gonna have an accident at some point and you're gonna realize that like some piece of data from somewhere in history, nobody is storing it anymore. Now I think um eighty-five terabytes per year is actually is totally fine, right? Like because uh 85 terabytes per year, like if you have, if you have even one person that just keeps buying like um, a hundred dollar hard drive, like uh, I think once every month, then they can store it, right? Like it's something like that. So it's too big for just like a casual user that just wants to run the chain on their laptop, but one dedicated user who cares, like they can totally afford to uh, um, afford to store the chain. Um, so 85 terabytes, not a big deal, right? But once you crank that number higher, there comes a point at which it starts becoming a really big deal. Um, so I, like, I guess that like the answer is a little bit unsatisfying in that there isn't some point, um, above which like it's obviously scalable up to this point, but it's obviously not scalable beyond this point. It's like, there are these weird systemic risks. And as the scalability goes up, the systemic risks go up and there just comes some point at which, you know, it becomes harder and harder to argue that this is like a credibly 100% secure and reliable blockchain. But, you know, do we know what that point is? Well, unfortunately, we don't really know until an accident happens. And so we have to be careful. Um, and, and so, like, I think, like, I personally am convinced that, um, you know, the 2.6 megabyte per second number is very safe. Um, I'm, like, I'm even convinced that going up, like, another half order of magnitude, another order of magnitude is very safe. But... Um, you know, realistically, we do want to keep the numbers like on uh, um, on the lower side, so that so that we can actually set uh, so that nobody feels uncomfortable. Like that, that's basically where the limits are at. Um, but you know, two point six megabytes a second is a lot, right? Like if we're talking about zk rollups that implement full compression, um, two point six megabytes divided by sixteen bytes a transaction, that's like one hundred thirty k TPS. Um, so. Uh, and if we add a decade of Moore's law, then, you know, we're talking hundreds of hundreds of thousands of TPS. So that's just like enough to run most users' transactions. Um, so I basically, I think with quadratic sharding, we'll be fine. So we've gotten through the merge and the surge, right? And we still have three other urges to go through. Okay, so the merge gives us proof of stake, basically. People know what that is. Uh, the surge gives us scalability, so we get massive bandwidth, massive throughput, particularly on rollups. Now we have scalability on Ethereum, and now we have proof of stake. What about the Verge? That's the next one on the roadmap. So what does that add? The Verge um, is uh, the introduction of uh, Verkle trees, right? So Verkle trees are a replacement for the Merkle Patricia trees that currently store the Ethereum state. Uh, so the Ethereum state is this database of uh, like all of the accounts, all of the smart contracts, all of the balances, all of the contract code, all the contract storage, everything that is remembered by the Ethereum blockchain that con that contracts and users and applications can access. Um, and that is all hashed into this tree structure, right? And uh, Virgil trees replace that tree structure. Uh, they replace the current um, hash-based uh, tree with a, uh, a Virgil tree, which is based on vector commitments. 
Now, you have to ask, well, what's the benefit of switching to vector commitments? The benefit of this has to do with this concept that I think I've talked about many times historically, which is a stateless clients. So what is a stateless client, right? So the like today, in order to verify a block N, you have to have the entire Ethereum state. And how do you get the entire Ethereum state? Like you have to like either you like fast sync and you download everything, or you have to download block N uh, um, block N minus one, or you have to verify block N minus one, right? So in order to kind of keep verifying Ethereum blocks and and stay up to date with the chain. You have to have this entire database locally. This database is big. It's about 40 gigabytes, I think, and it keeps on getting bigger. And if we end up like massively increasing the gas limit, then it'll get even more bigger. So it's, um, so what do stateless clients do? Stateless clients are ba basically let you say, what if instead of needing this entire database to verify a block, we're going to have this thing called a Virgil proof, which, pr which gives you only the pieces of the state that are read and written to and accessed in a particular block, along with a proof that proves to you that those pieces actually are correct, right? And so if you have that proof, then you can verify a block without needing any other information. Um, so you can imagine this proof as being an extra couple hundred kilobytes. Um, so there is the data. So there are the accounts, the code, and the contracts that are being read for that particular block. And then there are just these extra intermediate commitments and this is another few hundred kilobytes and that and those proofs um, act like basically tell you that the data that is being claimed actually is correct. Now, technically, you can make a, you can make proofs with Patricia trees, right? But the problem is that the proofs are incredibly big. Like we're talking like more than 10 megabytes. In the worst case, we're literally talking about 400 megabytes. So it's a little too much for users to be able to actually verify. But virtual trees, they use like some fancier technology. And if you want to learn more about that technology, I once again, I wrote an article about it. Um, and uh, the fancier technology of virtual trees allows you to have these proofs that are, that are much shorter and that are fast to verify. Um, and so we actually can't afford to have these stateless clients, right? So what is the benefit of stateless clients? Um, stateless clients basically let you just like immediately step in and say, hey, I'm going to verify this block. You don't need to have the state. You don't need to have anything. Like literally a fresh node can just swoop in and say, hey, I want to verify this block. And it can ask the network for the block, ask the network for the proof. And once it has the block or the proof, it just immediately sweeps through and it just verifies the whole thing. Um, so that now, why is that useful? Um, one reason why that's useful is that it allows validators to be much lighter. Um, validators would not have to have this big, heavy um, a database. Validators could just only verify blocks that they need to verify in real time, right? So as a ver as a validator, you would not need to have a big hard drive. You would theoretically be able to just do everything in RAM. So it will be scalable, faster, much much easier to set up, much more convenient. Um, so the experience as a validator would be much more decentralized. Um, and all you would have to do is you would just um, have to, um, you know, verify these blocks with these extra proofs attached. And, um, you know, like that, that would be all that you need to do to just uh, participate in the network. Does this mean like running a validator, running a node becomes so much easier on Ethereum? Somebody could run it on a phone, for example? I would, uh, po possibly, yes. This is a, um, 
design for the decentralization of Ethereum, right? It's like all of these urges have the same thing in common, which is like scalability without sacrificing decentralization. That's what we're doing with the merge. And so like if more people are running nodes, have the ability to run nodes, back to your point when you were talking about the verge, this gives us more defenders of the city, basically. So now we have the ability to add more bandwidth and increase the population of our city because we have more defenders who are able to run nodes to verify that, you know, everything in the city is is it's going okay. Exactly. Like I guess one analogy might be that like instead of uh having to like actually physically get your armor and weapons and go to the wall to be one of these watch guards, like you know, you could just sit in the comfort of your home and you could just have a drone. <laughs> that feels nice. I mean, you know, just like fly out the drone. <laughs> There's a theme that I'm noticing so far is some of these updates, some of these urges are really about increasing scalability. And then some of these updates, some of these hard forks, other these urges are also about making sure that those upgrades are secure. So one is upgrading scalability and then the rest are making sure that that effort is safe. And the Verge really seems to be about democratizing access to the broadest number of participants possible to anyone and everyone who wants to verify the validity of the chain. Would you say that's a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. And then, of course, the desire for everyone to be able to verify the chain is that when everyone can verify the chain, you as an individual can't be bullied by someone that can propose blocks when you can only verify blocks. This brings us to the fourth urge. This is uh, The Purge. I think there's a popular movie with that title, but uh, no relation. This is it. (laughs) Not a popular movie. Not a popular movie. movie. (laughs) Anyway, this is not at all related to that. What are we talking about when we uh, are talking about The Purge here on Ethereum's roadmap, Vitalik? Mm, um, Basically, this is about kind of eliminating the dead weight of history from Ethereum. Now, um, in a very broad sense, right? Um, so there's different kinds of uh, dead weights of history that we have to deal with. Um, one example of that is just like the, the load of the historical chain, right? So today, a client joining the Ethereum network has to download all historical blocks. Um, and they have to store all historical blocks. And this is a lot of data. This is like hundreds of gigabytes. Um, and post sharding, it will be even more, uh, like, well, it'll be terabytes. Um, so, the history expiry, this is that blue rectangle that's a little bit to the left. Um, it base, um, and by the way, like uh, in this uh, diagram, time approximately is left to right. So I'm hoping that history expiry actually does happen only a little bit after the merge, right? We see how the history expiry rectangle is like only a little bit to the right of the merge. Uh, so history expiry um, basically says we don't, we stop requiring all nodes to store all of these historical blocks. Um, instead, clients stop storing history that's more than one year old, and we kind of uh, shift the responsibility of storing and retrieving that history to other protocols. Um, so um, EIP-4444 is uh, probably the most popular uh, history expiry EIP right now. It's just very simple and dumb, just says clients don't have to store that stuff anymore. Um, so I think the interesting question there is, if all client nodes do not have to store history anymore, then who does, right? There are applications that depend on history that are more than one year old. I mean, even rollups do, right? Like a rollup, uh, in order to actually sync the state of a rollup, you like you do have to get date. Like, be, either you kind of 
like trust some state route that's say one week old and you have some separate peer to peer network that you download the state from. Or if you want to do it with just a blockchain, then you do have to basically walk through the entire history of the rollup. And so you do have to process all of these blocks one by one, right? Um, a lot of, um, like applications depend on old history to tell you about like all instances of when you use that application. So like tell you, like, I'm not sure exactly how like me, like die and Ryan, all these things work, but like maybe you need, uh, the, to, to scan the history to tell you what all your CDPs are. Um, if like, I know Augur needed to use um, like historical logs to tell you like all of the different markets that you've participated in. Um, so there is a lot of value in uh, in history and for at least some applications. And so there's this interesting question of like, well, what are these alternative ways of getting history, right? Now, the good news is that history is the sort of thing that is very self-verifying, right? You can just give someone Merkle proofs and they can verify Merkle proofs. Um, so it's not super hard to create protocols that actually, that kind of replace the Ethereum blockchain in, uh, actually giving users, uh, this data. And the other really nice thing about historical data, right, is that it is a one of N trust model. Um, so I think in one of our previous episodes, right, we talked about trust models. Like I, I wrote this post on trust models and like the difference between N out of two of N, one of N, zero of N. Um, and, the big difference between consensus and history is that consensus is an N, of, N out of two of N trust model, and so we have to worry a lot about it. But history, like data grabbing, is only a one of N trust model, and so you know it's uh, it's something where we actually can breathe a little bit easier, and we don't need to like require everyone to store everything, right? So the main contenders for getting history data, um, one is obviously the centralized approach, right? Etherscan, Etherchain, Beacon Chain, Beacon Scan, Amber Data, like all of these lovely folks, they are going to keep storing the entire chain because their users want the chain. And so if all else fails, there are these, uh, like about half a dozen centralized backstops that you can go talking to. Um, decentralized protocols. Um, the portal network is the Ethereum Foundation supported, uh, kind of, um, protocol for doing this. Uh, basically, every node could would only need to store a small percentage of all the data, and you would have a network that would just automatically route users to the subset of nodes that store like one particular piece of data. So one simple mental model for thinking about this might be that like when you start up your node, your node is just going to pick a random number from 0 to 100, and, it's, and let's say your node picks a number 67. And then your node is going to just agree. It's going to store the entire history for all blocks whose block numbers end in 67, right? And so if a user needs a transaction from a block whose block number ends in 67, it's going to talk to you. But instead, if uh, a user needs a transaction from a block whose block number ends in 45, then it's going to talk to David instead, right? And you have networks like the Porter network that just automatically make all of this happen. Um, so... That is the, uh, what, like, uh, roughly what the portal network is going to do. There are also third party protocols, right? So the graph is one that I think, uh, is uh, very far along in doing this sort of stuff that a lot of people are excited about. Um, the graph is a protocol that a lot of applications are switching to already, right? So a lot of existing applications, they stopped using Ethereum native, um, like history and log grabbing because it was too slow and they switched to the graph because it's faster, right? And so the graph already provides a lot of this. Now the graph is not yet fully decentralized. The graph still has some, a kind of training wheel, some centralized trust built in, but they do have a roadmap for kind of taking that out over time. Um, so the graph is another option. Um, 
there's another option is also on light client protocols, right? So light clients protocols, um, well, I think eventually they are going to end up kind of plugging into the portal network. Um, but there's a lot of work happening with light client protocols. So light client protocols are going to become much easier as a result of the merge because the merge supports sync committees, which make being uh, running a light client much easier. Um, and so we'll have a lot more light clients and we'll have a lot more of this Merkle proof grabbing infrastructure. Um, so the summary, right, is that the Ethereum base protocol will stop forcing every node to store all of history, but instead there's like this entire like, array of alternative solutions, um, block ex centralized solutions like block explorers, the portal network, um, the, the graph. And uh, all, even more protocols that I've forgotten about, all of these different alternative solutions that clients will have to ins instead go to if they want really old history information. Now, remember, most applications don't really even need old history information. So this is like for that subset of the applications that do, there are these solutions. Uh, but for users that don't, then, you know, Ethereum will just keep working exactly the way that Ethereum works today. Um, so that's history expiry. Um, the one, the longer term one that we could talk about next is a state expiry, right? So history is, um, like the, the analogy for history and state that I talk about often is, um, like history is, or the state is like a country's record of who its citizens are. Um, history is like all the birth records and all the death records, right? Um, so it's obvious that history is bigger than state because, like, when you, ha when someone dies, they, they get removed from the state, but they're still part of the history. Um, and then an archive node is like a node that stores, like, basically that has a separate page storing, like, who the citizens were during every possible year in history, right? Um, so, now, obviously, if you have the history, you can use that to regenerate an archive node. Um, and if you, if you have the history, you can kind of play through the, the history and you can use that to generate the current state. Um, but the history is bigger than the state and the archive node data is bigger than the history, like much bigger than the history and the state, but you can regenerate it from the history. Um, so the yeah, state expiry basically says, well, even though the state is smaller, eventually the state is still going to get really big. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read say objects in the state that have not been touched for the last year are going to go into the separate expired tree. And the Ethereum protocol is not responsible for storing the expired tree. The expired tree is part of history. But if you care about some account or some application that got moved into the expired tree, you can, you can go and provide the Merkle proofs and you can revive it, right? So state expiry does not impose on anyone like a risk of, you know, their coins getting deleted if they accidentally go into a cave for two years. Like if you go into a cave for two years, then you're just going to have to uh, provide the Merkle proofs to recover, uh, uh, to recover your coins. Right. Which is something that you totally can do. But in order to do that, like you're not going to have be able to just go through the regular Ethereum protocol. You're going to have to like talk to the portal network or talk to the graph or talk to a block explorer or talk to one of these other people in order to actually get that data. Um, so state expiry is actually something that I think can wait a very long time. Um, so you can see that in this diagram, it's, uh, the, the rectangle is like far to the right of even all of the other rectangles. 
Um, one of the reasons why it's so far to the right has to do with something that um, is, uh, we'll skip briefly ahead to the splurge, uh, proposer builder separation. Um, this is uh, this uh, buzzword that I think has uh, become very popular over the last few months. This is basically this idea that the, um, the validator that proposes a block and who actually constructs the block do not have to be the same actor, right? And instead of uh, forcing validators to create blocks, we're going to have an auction and we're going to auction off the right to create the blocks. And the reason why we're doing this is because creating a block that like really mag uh, gives us the uh, the highest gives the creator the highest possible fees gives them the highest possible MEV gives them the highest possible revenue in the long term is a pretty hard problem and we don't want to force validators to have to like figure out the complexities of dealing with that problem because we want anyone to be able to be a validator and so instead we're just going to say that we're there's a separate class of actors that can they're going to create these blocks and there's going to be an auction and so proposers can just easily choose the block that pays them the most um and we're, we'll add some extra protocol armor to ensure that this whole thing is still censorship resistant that transactions can still get in um there's uh um like degrad and our friend uh francisco have been doing a lot of research on that but one of the really nice side effects of pbs is that validators are no longer involved in the job of creating blocks, right? So validators no longer have to store the state. Um, this also gets into virtual trees, right? Validators only have to verify blocks. It's the builders that have to create blocks. So the builders have to store the state, but the builders are going to be pretty specialized anyway. And so if the state blows up to four terabytes, well, you know, the builders can store four terabytes, right? So if we have virtual trees and we have PBS, Technically, we don't really ever need state expiry. And so if the can gets kicked down the road 20 years on state expiry, that's actually totally fine. But like, I think eventually we do want the Ethereum protocol to be kind of more elegant and to not have this kind of extra junk data that keeps going up and up forever. And so adding some kind of state expiry does make sense, right? Um, so that is like a much longer term thing. Um, but if, if it has to happen, it can happen. Um, and then the last part of the purge has to do with technical debt, right? So it has to do with actually simplifying the protocol um, and actually removing a lot of the complexities from the from the code that currently make it more difficult to create a node, that currently make it more difficult to like like actually run a node, to debug, and like to like just you know make an Ethereum implementation. Um, so. The self-destruct opcode is one of those opcodes that I really hate um, and uh, that I have good reasons to hate. Um, I think if you just like Google search like Vitalik bans or Vbooterin ban self-destruct, you can probably find the post where I advocate for why we should ban self-destruct. Oh, no, no, sorry. It's uh, Vbooterin pragmatic destruction of self-destruct. That's the title. Um, um, so I talk about like why I think that's a good idea. Um, Virgil trees also depend on banning self-destruct because they change the storage layout in a certain way. Um, gas stipends are another thing that I want to remove at some point. Um, a lot of the precompilers we can remove and re we can just replace them with EVM implementations. Um, we can remove, we can simplify logs eventually. We can remove RLP eventually. Uh, we can, um, find solutions for dust accounts. So like if someone has like say $50 of ETH or $50 of ERC20 tokens today and they have a hard time paying the gas fees to remove that, then there are a number of ideas that can make it cheaper for them to deal with all of that stuff. Um, so a lot of little things, right? But the core idea here is to basically kind of like leave the past in the past and 
create an Ethereum that actually becomes simpler and simpler over time. So I want to try and summarize that using a metaphor and see how well that lands with you. And so my mind is actually going to um, the game of Snake. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, the game of Snake was played with little squares. And the snake, you would start off really, really short. Maybe it'd only be four or five blocks long. And it would move around the screen and it would eat a block. And then it would grow one block longer. And that's kind of like a blockchain, right? Blockchains grow. People add data to them. The snake gets a little bit longer. And as that snake gets longer, it also gets harder to manage. And sometimes it runs into itself and dies. I actually think this is a really good metaphor for a blockchain. What you're saying with the purge is there. And ultimately, the game of snake ends with you dying because you got too long. That's that's the long-term conclusion of the game of snake and hope maybe also the long-term conclusion of blockchains. Maybe if there's too much data in a blockchain, it just gets too long and then it dies, it crashes. Uh, And so what you're saying with a purge is, is there's a bunch of ways where we can start to trim off the snake and keep it shorter, keep it more agile, keep it more lightweight. And when it's shorter, more people can manage it, more people can use it. And so state expiry, history expiry, and then just eliminating some of these EVM opcodes and some other things are all different ways that we have determined that we can safely trim off the tail of the snake and leave what you said, the past in the past, so that the snake stays at a manageable length that could be managed by more people. How is that for a metaphor? That is a really fun analogy. Okay. Um, okay <laughs> let, let's see if I can like take like come up with a city analogy for the purge. Like, let's say imagine you have a city, right? And let's imagine that because of global warming, every couple of years you just have to move the city a hundred kilometers north, right? Because the earth is warming, and so eventually, where the city was before, it gets too cold. Um, now, imagine if like you have a like. Like for some reason, um, today we just design, designed the city kind of security protocol in such a way that even though the city keeps moving and, and we have to keep building new city walls, we still have to keep on guarding all of the old city walls forever, right? So every time there's a new city, like in, like the, the number of walls that keep, that you have to keep guarding just keep, just keeps increasing, even if the city's population doesn't go up. Right. So the purge basically is about fixing that problem and about saying like, hey, these cities are abandoned. And, you know, if you really want to, like if you really want to like go and grab stuff from, from your old home, then, you know, we can like provide you for some way to like hire some private security so you can go and visit that city. But like we're not going to keep maintaining security for that city forever. And then on theme with what's been going on so far is with, uh, you know, first, some of these changes are Ethereum expanding and growing into new fields. And then some of these changes are Ethereum protecting that expansion, right? First, we build out and then we harden. And one of the questions I had for you is that eliminating state, eliminating state in Ethereum was part of the purge, which is kind of antithetical to what a blockchain is. Blockchains, you're not supposed to eliminate data. That's not what they do. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. But what you're saying is, with some of these strategies, we can safely prune some of the data and have strong assurances that that data will still be available somehow, some way, by some manner, in ways that it feels still secure to eliminate that data from the current state while still having strong assurances that that data is available somewhere. Exactly. So like the, the way that I think about the blockchain philosophically is that it becomes this kind of public billboard where the billboard guarantees that everything that looks like it's on the billboard actually was published to the billboard and it actually was correct. Um, but like you don't actually have to have everyone 
that's responsible for securing the billboard also be responsible for recording the entire history of the billboard, right? Because, uh, like, recording history is an easier problem than, uh, than securing. Um, and so, you know, we only have uh, a smaller number of people actually, like, record the history of the entire uh, billboard, and that smaller number of people is enough because securing the billboard is an N, o N out of two of N problem, but recording history is a one out of N problem. And so, like, we just don't need to have this incredibly huge number of people recording the history of the billboard forever. There we go, guys. Isn't blockchain fun? Snakes and cities, merges and purges. Uh, here we go with the fifth one is my favorite, at least in title, is the splurge. Let's talk about the splurge. And there's so many things I think we could talk about because this seems like a grab bucket category, miscellaneous category of all sorts of other cool things that uh, Ethereum could do in the future. Maybe some of these things are further out than others. But could you pick like maybe one or two, Vitalik, that uh, that you think would be useful to talk about in this catch-all bucket? Sure. Um, so uh, proposed builder separation we've talked about already. Um, account abstraction. That's a, uh, a one that we've talked about, I think, since forever. And I think people have heard about that at a long time, right? Like basically the idea is just like make smart contract wallets more like first class citizens. And so it becomes as easy to like do all of your Ethereuming with a smart contract wallet as it is with a regular account. And today that's not the case because of the way that the Ethereum protocol was just structurally assumes that everyone has what's called an externally owned account. Uh, but account abstraction just fixes those issues. And so things like multi-sig wallets, things like social recovery wallets uh, just become really easy for anyone to use as their primary account. Um, so I think the newest development is account in account abstraction is ERC4337. Um, so this is a, uh, layer, like, a, a layer two sort of approach to account abstraction that says, instead of changing the protocol to support account abstraction, we're just going to create this kind of second transaction layer where we have these user operation objects that um, uh, directly talk to smart contracts. And then there does need to be like a wrapper transaction that wraps around all of the user operations that get included in a block. But instead of having the transaction overhead per user operation, you just have it once per block, right? Um, and this, and then you have a separate mempool for user operations. Miners can listen to that mempool. Um, you could, and, uh, um, actors like that participate in flashbots can listen to that mempool. Um, and so like, Basically, you create this kind of like higher level ecosystem where users can do everything that they need to do with these smart contract wallets and with these user operations. Um, and every, there exit, there is this kind of higher, like higher level construction consisting of these actors part of the, in the ecosystem that are listening to this mempool that actually make sure that everything gets included on chain, right? So it's like, Instead of changing the existing protocol, you create a protocol that sits on top of the existing protocol. So instead of layer two for scaling, it's sort of layer two for account abstraction. But like the difference here, right, is that like this, this isn't creating like a separate universe that's account abstracted. Like account abstracted wallets will be able to interact with all existing applications. They are, they just, they are Ethereum addresses. They are Ethereum smart contracts, right? So account abstraction and like another really nice thing about ERC4337 is that the exact same ERC4337 can work on Ethereum layer one. It'll work on Optimism. It can work on Arbitrum. It can work on Polygon. Um, you know, it could, I think with some modifications work on Starknet. Um, so like all of this, uh, st um, 
so it basically is this uh, kind of path toward an ecosystem-wide upgrade that uh, that could bring us toward um, smart contract wallets actually being a reality. That's very cool. Can I ask the other thing in this grab bucket? Maybe there's so many other things we could talk about, but ZK snark everything. ZK snarkifying everything. That might be a bit more uh, on the distant horizon, but that sounds really awesome. What is that? Basically, like we like we we want to completely move away from this idea of like users verifying things by re-executing them, right? So like ZK Snark the EVM so that um, users don't even have to verify, uh, don't have to run the EVM. Um, ZK Snark the beacon chain transition so that users um, don't have to run the beacon chain transition. ZK Snark um, you know signature verification so users don't have to verify signatures, right? So basically, get to the point where. The only person who needs to actually run the EVM and actually like run the, the beacon chain, like state transition function or run any of that stuff is whoever is that, whoever is creating the block. Everyone else just verifies one snark and that one snark lets them verify the entire block. And so what does that give us? Like, does that provide dividends across all of these things? That makes it extremely easy for anyone to run a node. So it just adds more and more drones, watchtowers of all types to the city so that everyone is participating in the security of the city in an easier fashion. Exactly. It chops the snake's tail off, David. So it's just a, a little snake again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a single block snake. Yeah, so like, so like you ha- all you have is like the, the head of the snake. Mm-hmm. And instead of the body of the snake, you just have like a ZK Snark of a body of the snake. And like the snake is happy. It doesn't need the body. It just it has a proof that, it's, oh that the body exists. Right. I want to unpack that. So there's just one head of the snake, which is normal. And then the whole rest of the body has been ZK Snark. So it's this tiny little tail that's connected to this normal sized head. Uh, and that's how Ethereum just becomes super ultra lightweight. Somebody's going to make a ZK Snark game in ZK, you know, Stark technology somewhere after this episode, I think. Yeah. The Gemini exchange has been my exchange of choice ever since I got into crypto. I use Gemini to both buy the dips and also manage my regular automatic monthly purchases of my preferred crypto asset. On Gemini, you'll find over 50 different cryptos, including many of the top DeFi and metaverse tokens like YFI and Axie Infinity. Using Gemini Earn, you can earn yield on your various cryptos, including 8% on the GUSD stablecoin. Gemini is available in all 50 states and more than 50 countries worldwide. So if you're looking to upgrade your crypto exchange, sign up at Gemini with Gemini.com slash GoBankless and get $15 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days. That's Gemini.com slash GoBankless. Slingshot is a decentralized trading platform that combines the performance and ease of a centralized exchange with the openness and transparency of DeFi. Slingshot aggregates liquidity from all of DeFi in order to find the best price on thousands of crypto assets. Every token on Slingshot comes with a price chart and trade logs to give you insights into the market's activity in real time. Slingshot is available on Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism, saving you from the high gas feeds and low transaction speeds of the Ethereum L1. There are no fees to trade on Slingshot, and any positive slippage is given to the users. Trading on Slingshot Slingshot is a social experience. You can even set your chat avatar to your favorite NFT or soon a Slingshot 2099 NFT avatar. Once you bridge your assets to Polygon, Arbitrum, or Optimism, go to app.slingshot.finance to trade and use the chat box to share your trades with others and find other tokens to ape into. 
The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 internet with built-in privacy and ad blocking to keep you in charge of your digital footprint. Inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave wallet, the first secure crypto wallet built natively inside of a Web3 crypto browser. Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. The Brave wallet is different. Brave wallet is built natively inside the Brave browser, no extension required, which gives the Brave wallet an extra level of security versus other wallets. With the Brave wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap your crypto assets, and you can even manage your NFTs and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to switch to the Brave wallet. Download Brave at brave.com slash bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. But Vitalik, give us kind of the, I guess, the high-level overview. So we started this episode, you said you felt like you could be convinced in saying that Ethereum is maybe 50% of the way done, Okay. Does the end of these things after the merge, surge, purge, verge, splurge, mm-hmm. are we at 100% at that point in time? Is everything done? I would say so. Um, I mean, there are a couple of these longer term extras that we haven't talked about, but it would probably take too long for us to talk about all of them. But I feel like, and I, I do think that like none of these roadmaps are final, right? Like these roadmaps are kind of my attempts to reflect the current rough consensus of the research team. Um, so like there are new things that did not exist before, right? Like PBS did not exist a year ago. And so you did not see PBS in last year's roadmap. Um, so there might be a couple of things, but I think once all of these things are done, like I will say this, if this is all done and then nothing else ever changes after that, then I'll be extremely happy. Right now, like I feel like this covers everything that's like necessary for Ethereum to not only survive, but even thrive going into the long term. So Ethereum is six years old. How long is this going to take? Is this going to take another six years? I could definitely see all this happen in six years. Yeah. Vitalik, if one or a handful of these things doesn't happen, is everything here crucial? Does everything here need to happen in order for Ethereum to last multi-generations? I would say if only the merge and the surge happen, then Ethereum can already um, survive and thrive and last multiple generations. Um, to me, the uh, again, it's possible that PBS is necessary for security. Um, and, and it's like possible that, you know, well, the, the verge is going to become really important eventually, but even there, it doesn't need to, right? Because, uh, like one alter, like one possible alternative to the verge is that eventually if the, if the merge and the surge finish at some point, we just reduce the gas limit all the way back down to 3 million, uh, because we don't like, we don't need layer one gas anymore because everything happens on layer two. Right. So aside from the merge and the surge, I do, there are alternatives to everything, but I think it is still a nice to have. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm still really excited about all of these things taking place. And so what we're looking at, guys, is for bankless listeners, we're breaking into kind of the firmware, the machinery of this trust computer that we call Ethereum here. Right. That's what we're doing. We're kind of almost looking at the motherboard with Vitalik, if you will. Once this computer is built, of course, I know you remember Vitalik, the meme of Ethereum, the internet computer that went a little wild in 2017. No, no, the world computer, the internet computer's divinity. Excuse me, the world's computer that went a little wild in 2017. But like, there's some truth to it, right? This is a world computer that has been built. So once this roadmap comes to fruition, what will we have? Like, what is at the other side of this? I mean, Bitcoin's vision famously has now become sort of a digital gold, if you will. It's all about Bitcoin the asset and the scarcity of that asset. What do we get when this world computer is fully built out? 
when you'll get a system where if you want to build an application where you want some piece of that application to have execution that's globally trusted, you can just use Ethereum to do it. And that spawns infinite numbers of possible applications, some of which we have designed so far and some of which I guess we'll see in the future. So Vitalik, that was a high-level summary of the Ethereum roadmap thus far and into the future, even though it's an always-changing thing. The crypto industry is always changing. And something that we've seen in the last year is the rise of the alternative layer ones. And where Ethereum has this goal to get to the state that we've been discussing, alternative layer ones have cropped up, some with different goals and some with other goals. And you've also written an article lately called Endgame that makes the case that all blockchains ultimately converge on the same future. We want to unpack this part of this conversation because other alt-layer ones, alternative layer ones, have their own roadmap. And you think that ultimately long-term blockchains will converge upon the same future. So we want to unpack that. But before we get into the Endgame article, I just kind of want to get your take on 2021 with regards to Ethereum and then all the other smart contract platforms that, that came about. The first half of 2021 was really just Ethereum's show. NFTs absolutely blew up. DeFi was huge. We saw the seedlings of Web3 platforms put cryptography into corners of the world that had never seen it before. So many people got uh, private keys. So many people learned how to use MetaMask. So many people approached crypto in a positive light rather than just, you know, drug dealing internet money, which was really cool. Ethereum in the first half of 2021 kind of turned into a victim of its own success in my mind. It got so adopted so quickly that it became extremely congested. Massive adoption turned into exclusionary gas fees, expensive NFTs priced out everyone, and Ethereum kind of got this negative branding as like a whale chain, if you will. This turned into a bunch of pushback into alternative newer layer ones and pushed users into these newer layer ones because crypto people want to do crypto stuff. They want to push buttons on their MetaMask. They want to push buttons on their ledger. And so we saw the rise of Binance Smart Chain, Solana, Avalanche, Phantom, Terra, just a slew of other layer ones to really satisfy the demand of layer one block space. And so I don't really have a specific question here, but what do you make of 2021 and the distribution of where the average crypto user has fallen with regards to all the different new crypto systems that are out there? What do you make of all this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, there's clearly a lot of demand for scaling. There's a lot of demand for blockchain space that is cheap. Um, and um, you know, like ultimately, users are going to gravitate to where that space is provided, right? Um, so you know, actually, this reminds me of a fun um, fact from my uh, recent trip to um, Argentina. Um, so guess what is, what is the alternate layer one that, it is, that the you know, like people just like using cryptocurrency um, on the ground for, co for, for commerce in Argentina are using most often, that, as far as I can tell? Bitcoin? No, no, Bitcoin's also expensive. Right? Oh, okay. It's it's one where transactions are extremely cheap. Okay. Well let's go through. Is it um is it Matic? No. Okay, not Matic. Is it uh Terra? No. Solana? No. Wait, I think you might be right, Ryan. I think it's Tron. Is it gonna be Tron? Tron is probably the one of the number two. Like what's the number one? Um Binance Chain? It's Binance. Not Binance Smart Chain, Binance Decentralized Exchange. Ah, uh, okay. Mm. For doing what? What are they doing on Binance? Like they just like need cryptocurrency for payments. Um, they um, yeah, like like one of them was just a coffee shop that ex that um, accepted crypto. There are a couple of other businesses. Like when I ask if they can pay with 
if I can pay with ETH, they just show me the QR code of a deposit address. And like, it's just obvious that they're used to, um, like Binance to Binance transfers, which are instant, right? And like my Ethereum to Binance uh, transfer has to wait for 12 confirmations in the app. Um, so yeah, you know, there we go. That's, uh, you know, that uh, so far that's the Ethereum killer. So is, is Binance like an alternate layer one in your mind? Or like, I've always thought of like Binance as... Uh, I mean, ultimately it I is, right? So. Like, sure, it's like a guy's <laughs> database. But, you know, if, like, if, like if we're talking about people who don't care about the level of decentralization, then like... <laughs> Just to illustrate this, if you have a Binance address and I have a Binance address, both Binance knows that it has both of our addresses. And so if it goes from Binance address A to Binance address B, it just accounts for that on its internal ledgers and just updates its internal balances and the users are apparently okay with that in Argentina. Exactly. And they should be because like it's better than the existing system, which is what makes them users, right? Yeah, like I think uh, like in Argentina, I remember that the thing that all of this crypto stuff is competing with is uh, one, like highly inflationary Argentine pesos and two US dollar cash, which is inconvenient. You have to hide it under your mattress and potentially have it get robbed or you have to put it in some complicated safety deposit box that you have with like some company that you have to maintain. Um, so like even Binance, the centralized exchange is already a big improvement over what these people would be mm-hmm. using otherwise. Um, now, obviously, ideally, um, you know, there, the uh, Ethereum ecosystem would be able to serve all of these uh, users directly, but scalability is not high enough for that yet. But it is, uh, uh, as I think we've talked about, it's, uh, it's uh, coming quite close to being ready. So are you making the case, Vitalik? I want to make sure I understand. So like, do you think it's true that users don't care about decentralization or like, why should they even care about decentralization if Binance is going to service their needs and provide what they need? And, you know, maybe I, as an, someone in Argentina, would you trust CZ and Binance over my, my local banking system? And I understand why. Are you making the case that that's true and that therefore is from these alt layer ones that trade off decentralization for bandwidth and speed and that sort of thing. That's a good thing. What are your thoughts there? I, um, I think a lot of people do care about decentralization, but like they're not going to take the decentralization if the decentralization costs $8 a transaction. There's this quote that you had in 2017 that says the internet of money should not cost five cents per transaction. And I remember when you said that in 2017, I think a lot of people who have been angry at high gas fees on Ethereum have used that quote recently. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you still believe? Of course I do, yeah. Yeah, talk about that in the context of the Ethereum roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, block, like in order for blockchains to be able to actually be something that like, people are going to adopt for just mainstream applications, like it, 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 it has to be... It has to be cheap and it has to be not just cheap by the standards of uh, whales who bought crypto in 2014. It has to be cheap by the standards of people who are coming into the system today and who are going to be putting, you know, 20 or $40 into crypto if they put in anything at all. Right. And so Ethereum, to, like, you know, yes, Ethereum today is not a, yes, uh, like the layer one is not a system that's uh, ready for uh, like direct mass adoption by users. But that's exactly why we've been like harping the drum of uh, scalability and layer twos and charting and all of these things pretty like since uh, uh, 2014, right? Like the, 
the Ethereum's roadmap like and kind of vision and strategy is like exactly the same as it was back in uh, 2017 when I talked about the need for the need for fees to be low. Um, and uh, you know the layer twos are coming close to like close to providing that right. Like Loopring has been around for a year and it provides uh, you know transaction fees that are not quite five cents, but they tend to be like around fifteen cents or so today. Um, and of course, once sharding comes along, then like it will be much less than five cents again. Um, so there's, uh, like the layer two ecosystem is definitely, um, together with layer one sharding is completely on the way to like bringing us back to the really low fees that we had back in 2014 and 15. And that allowed so much, um, amazing experimentation early on to start happening. Um, but you know, to get there, we do need to actually yeah, solve all of, um, all of these hard technical problems. There's a, a line that's going around in the crypto Twitter sphere and the overall conversation of all the crypto people out there about how Ethereum maxis are just Bitcoin maxis 2.0. It's unknown whether this trope is actually stated by the users or perhaps injected by the VC L1 builders out there trying to fund Ethereum. Perhaps the truth is somewhere in the middle. But Vitalik, as somebody who originally forked off of Bitcoin, how do you feel about that line? Mm, you know, I definitely think that maximalism is something that's uh, very unhealthy. Um, and like, there definitely are tendencies, I think, among some people in even the Ethereum community to try to kind of brand everything outside of the Ethereum ecosystem as being boring and illegitimate, which like, I don't think is true. Like, I think, you know, there's real fun, like interesting stuff happening in Zcash lands. There's real interesting stuff happening in like, say, Tezos. You know, there's uh, that the, one of the cities that I talked about in my Crypto Cities article, they're doing everything on Tezos. Um, so they're like, I, I do think that, you know, there are honorable communities that are not just like taking the quick buck and that, that actually do care about decentralization. Um, but at the same time, right? Like it's, uh, I, like it's, it's also like there's definitely a lot of people that like basically just use the word Ethereum maxi to just refer to someone who supports Ethereum, which is just crazy, right? Like there's uh, like this idea that, um, decentralization is really important, for example, right? And I think Ethereum is like one of the really valuable and important things about the Ethereum community is that it does have a core that is, that strongly believes in decentralization. It's willing to continue fighting for it. It's, uh, you know, willing to like even delegitimize and stop publicly supporting applications that kind of betray those principles. Um, yeah, whereas, uh, you know, on a lot of other ecosystems, like you have entire dApps that are like close source and people just like, like barely blink an eye about it. Um, so that's the, um, so I think, um, you know, I, I guess my, my, my view there is, is, uh, somewhere in the middle. Like I think it's definitely important to like also have our eyes open and look at all of, and uh, look at what's uh, going on in all of these other ecosystems. Um, but, at the same time, like I, we do have to remember because or that a lot of people do like support Ethereum, not just because of, uh, you know, some kind of like 
you know, bias of, you know, like they got their bags in earlier because like ultimately, like, you, you know, if you have your bags in Ethereum, but you decide Ethereum is worse and you can just move all your bags to something else, you know, it's a, it's a free market. Um, but I, I think, you know, people do believe that, um, decentralization is valuable and important and, and they just see the Ethereum community as being a community that is, that is, uh, willing to actually work hard and to, and uh, take all of the necessary steps to actually build the future where we have uh, scalability and decentralization at the same time. And that's, I think, something that's, uh, you know, re uh, really important to keep. And I know you personally, Vitalik, aren't maximalist about anything, but, you know, your article about concave versus convex thinking, right, that sort of thing. But if you had to be ascribed the label of maximalist something, how close are you to being a decentralization maximalist? Does that describe your philosophy on things, Vitalik? I, mean, I would not call myself an anything maximalist, but I definitely think that decentralization is extremely important. Um, it's like ultimately decentralization is what this space is about, right? And, uh, and then like once you start compromising on that, then there does come a point where you just have to ask, well, like what is even the difference between what's being built here and uh, centralized systems? Um, and uh, like I think the more that we can actually get to like genuine um, decentralization and an ecosystem where, you know, in order to make changes to the protocol, like you actually needs to have buy-in, not just from a couple of protocol elites, but from the entire user community. Like, I think that's a really important and beautiful thing. Um, and it's also an important and beautiful thing for, um, you know, ETH, the asset to maintain its credibility. It's an important thing for a lot of the applications on Ethereum to maintain their credibility. And it's something that we need to like uh, fight for and support. This starts to get into the conversation of the end game paper, which I think we want to transition into now. I do agree with you, Vitalik, that obviously the decentralization is the prime thing that really supports this entire industry. But a lot of the alternative layer ones that have cropped up in the last half of the year have penetrated into the crypto markets using cheap block space fees, having ample block space supply, and they got that way via centralization. But there's an argument out there that's, that says that while Ethereum sacrificed scalability first in order to achieve scalability later, other uh, centralized layer ones sacrifice decentralization first and can achieve decentralization later. It's just a matter of picking which of the blockchain trilemma systems uh, points do you want to compromise and then work on. I want to get your perspective on if you think that's a fair characterization. Can you compromise on decentralization at the start to achieve it later? And do you think all of these alternative layer ones, all layer ones, all blockchain layer ones ultimately converge on more or less the same design structure in the very distant long term? I mean, like, first of all, like, I think this post is, is in some ways more about the theory than the practice, right? Like in practice, I think a lot of these communities pay lip service to decentralization, but they don't like deeply give much of a crap about it. Like how many of them even try having multiple clients, for example? Some do, right? But others don't. And I think uh, looking at which ones do and which ones don't uh, tells you a lot about an ecosystem. Um, but the, so the question I ask basically is like, if you, were to like say put me in charge of one of these centralized big blockchains and like and i were to like and you were to ask me like what would it take to actually turn th that chain as it is today into a blockchain that has what i would consider to be acceptable levels of decentralization and trustlessness and uh, censorship resistance right and the like plausible roadmap that i have here basically has 
a collection of things that a yeah, big blockchain can do in basically to add what, what what I would call protocol armor that actually adds a censorship resistance and decentralization. Which was a big part of the conversation of the Ethereum roadmap that we just had. Exactly. Um, so the core ideas here basically say, well, okay, look, we have this chain where block production is uh, very centralized, but what if we can allow block verification to happen in a way that is decentralized, right? So you have all sorts of decentralized actors that can propose transactions where those transactions have to be included. And so you have censorship resistance, and then you have um, all of these different actors actually do the verification so that a bad block producer or a bad co um, collusion of block producers can't actually like push an invalid block through, right? So I talk about like having a second tier of staking with low resource requirements that does some distributed block validation. And so you can do some committee verification. Um, you can also do verification with ZK SNARKs or verification with fraud proofs. Um, to check that block data is available and that blocks aren't being hidden, you can introduce data availability sampling, um, secondary transaction channels, so different ways for transactions to get in, to get um, like seen by these uh, second tier stakers, so that they uh, the protocol then actually forces the uh, the creator of the next block to include them. So all of these uh, kind of pieces of armor that you can add around a protocol so that even if you do have one big block producer, the big, the, what they produce is still validated by this highly distributed process that prevents them from actually using their power to do anything terrible. Right. So this is like the best that you can do if you want to start from what where these blockchains are today and get to a point that I would consider acceptable. Just to iterate, this is a strategy for crypto systems that have compromised on decentralization and they have centralized just a small handful, maybe just even one uh, block producer, some one entity or a very small number of entities that actually produce the blocks. But what you're saying is there's a series of technologies that allows for the individuals, the many of the world, to check the powers of that central party. So while that central party does have a lot of power because they're the only ones proposing blocks, or maybe there's just a few of these block proposers, they still have to pass through the many, many, many individuals that are given power, given uh, sovereignty through some of these cryptographic techniques. Is that what we were saying? Mm -hmm. And what kind of system do we end up with if they did that? Vitalik, is this what we mean by decentralization? So like, what sorts of things could the block producers have power over and how could the verifiers, the validators sort of provide a check on that power? Right. So the worst that they could do, like one is they can extract all the MEV. Um, they could probably delay all transactions by a couple of blocks. So like we, we have a lot of this research on these alternative uh, transaction inclusion mechanisms that can force transactions to be included. But those, me like those mechanisms aren't perfect and they don't like they eliminate a lot of the block producers power, but they don't eliminate all of their power. Um, so block producers would still be able to like manipulate ordering of transactions a little bit. Um, you know, if like you have an NFT auction suddenly appear, then like the block producers would still be the ones that will be able to get first bit, uh, first dibs on everything. Um, so it's not perfect, but it is still a system where like you can't push invalid blocks through. You can't completely censor transactions. Um, you can't push unavailable blocks through. And so the core things of what a yeah, blockchain needs to be a blockchain theoretically are still there. So one of the questions I have for you, Vitalik, is there are some parallels here, and this is uh, next up in your article. There are some parallels between centralized L1s with centralized block producers 
and layer two rollups on Ethereum. Can you elaborate for the listeners as to why so much of these conversations overlap between centralized L1s and L2 rollups? Sure. Um, so this is the second um, thought experiment I have here, right? Which is like, imagine if you, we do layer two scaling and some, there is one rollup team that does a really good job of engineering and they get really high levels of scalability, right? So like imagine Arbitrum, for example, they have an amazing EVM ZK rollup and they figure out how to do parallelization. They figure out how to do like uh, an amazingly parallel EVM. They have a super high performance node and they have, you know, a rollup that does 10,000 TPS. Right. Now, the techniques for how to do this are actually all pretty well known, right? Like Daniel Larimer and EOS like, has been talking about this stuff since even 2014, right? Um, now, imagine if you have this system and you have this as a roll-up running on top of Ethereum. What does that world look like, right? So I would argue that that world actually looks extremely similar to the world where you start with a centralized chain and you add the protocol armor. The difference is that in the in the centralized chain, like you have the centralized chain that does the centralized sequencing, and then it also adds the decentralized validation. In this world, you would have Arbitrum or the Arbitrum sequencer, whoever that is, do the centralized sequencing, but then you would have the Arbitrum protocol fraud proof functionality um, that allows the decentralized validation to happen. Um, and then you would have the Ethereum protocol itself provide all of the protocol armor to keep the the rest of the decentralization, right? So like, for example, you would need um, rollups already. They generally have secondary transaction channels. So if the main sequencer is not accepting a transaction, you have an alternative way of, get, of uh, getting your transaction included. And the next rollup block is forced to include that transaction. Um, you also have... Um, no, data availability verification is done by the Ethereum protocol. Um, so today everyone downloads everything, but in the future we have data availability sampling. Um, so the Ethereum protocol, um, becomes this kind of guarantor of censorship resistance and availability, um, and all of, the, um, all of these other things. And then you have like the, in this case, the Arbitrum smart contracts that would actually provide the fraud proof, uh, like verification and a lot of the rest of the armor that makes sure that whoever does create the blocks can't actually abuse their power. Right. So even though it's implemented using a very, like uh, a very different path and you have this different kind of division of labor between the Arbitrum Layer 2 protocol and the Ethereum Layer 1 protocol, the result actually still ends up looking fairly similar to um, what um, we had in the first section there. That's the second thought experiment, and we get sort of a similar result, similar end game, as the uh, title of the article says. But that's probably not what we expect, or at least most in Ethereum right now expect. We probably aren't going to see one roll-up dominate and win. That's a possibility, but we probably won't see that given the plethora of different roll-up solutions, implementations, you know, trade-offs that they're making, and you know, strengths that they have. What we'll probably see is a multi-roll-up world where we have many different roll-ups from many different teams. But you make the argument in this third thought experiment that even if we have a multi-roll-up kind of world, if we live in that world, we might still end up in the same place. Can you walk us through that piece of things? Sure. Um, so this gets us into this discussion of cross-domain MEV, right? So the issue here basically is, okay, you have many different rollups, but even if you have many different rollups, there's this argument that there is an incentive to try to be a block producer on all of them at the same time. 
And the reason why there's an incentive to be a block producer on all of them at the same time basically has to do with this concept of cross-domain arbitrage, right? Like if you scroll down to that diagram, like this is an uh, ex oh, no, no, up, 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 the, the Western Gate one. Yep, the purple, yeah. Like this is um, a yeah, cross-domain MEV opportunity discovered by Western Gate, right? So you're converting 44374 USDT into 44660 USDT and... Half of the operation happens on, I think that's Polygon, right? And then the other half of the operation happens on the Ethereum base chain. Um, so as we move to a layer two centric Ethereum, things like this will become normal. It will become normal to see that like w there are these arbitrage opportunities where one half of the opportunity gets done in a layer two. The other half of a layer of our, of the opportunity happens on a different layer two. So like it might happen on Stark X, for example, um, or, you know, it might happen on like, you know, the, uh, Z on DYDX, um, it might, uh, or on some, some exchange running on optimism. Um, you might even have like uh, an arb between, uh, the copy of Uniswap that's on optimism and the copy of Uniswap that's on Arbitrum. Uh, so the, like in this world, there are advantages from being the proposer for everything at the same time. Um, and so, if now it's not certain that things will go in this direction, right? But if things do go in this direction, then like we could easily see some kind of protocol takeover that basically auctions off like kind of the right to be a proposer for these rollups as a package deal. And so you end up having the second, the same actor end up proposing on all of them, even if the like the protocols are designed in such a way that you could have different proposers on them, right? Um, so now. If the world does go this way, it's actually not that bad. The reason why it's not that bad is because rollups provide all of this protocol armor to make sure that even if there are centralized actors taking over like block proposing, they can't uh, push through invalid things, they can't push through unavailable things, and because rollups all have these censorship-resistant bypass channels, they can't even censor anyone. Right? So... The world of uh, roll-ups where proposing gets concentrated is still a world, a world that is not that bad. And also, interestingly enough, it's a world that is very similar to the world of one roll-up or to the world of centralized chains, right? So basically, we end up potentially getting to a, a future that is very similar to the future that we would get in these other two worlds. I think this all brings up the point to me, then, Vitalik, if all three of these approaches result in the same thing, then why not just take the big block approach from the get-go and scalability? And are the alt layer ones taking the right approach after all? I think the uh, Ethereum approach is more future-proof, right? It's more future-proof because like, it, it still leaves agnostic the question of, you know, are we going to be in a single-domain world or are we going to be in a yeah, multi-domain world? And it doesn't completely surrender um, on the centralization issue, right? Like if it turns out that there that the optimal way to organize proposers is some decentralized structure, where like for example something like the existing Flashbots uh, model, where you have a like this internal market consisting of searchers, then the Ethereum like uh, system is still friendly to that, right? So, but on the other hand, if you start from a layer one where you make the assumption of a centralized proposing, then like you don't really have a good way of getting out of that right um so i guess the the, the question is not like 
is about like the more you believe in uncertainty and the more you believe that like we really want to have a system that is open to all of the different possibilities, then the more kind of this Ethereum approach that is agnostic toward what the future will be, but tries to be, yeah, you know, friendly to and have ways to support all of them um, looks like the more that approach looks the most attractive. It's funny to me, as much as Ethereum by maybe Bitcoin Maximalist and others has been criticized in the past for being, I guess, moving fast and breaking things too much. I often see Ethereum from a roadmap perspective, taking a very conservative approach. It's a very conservative approach to decentralization. And in particular, it looks very conservative when you contrast it with all of these very high throughput, big block alt-layer ones that have sprung up recently. I definitely agree with that. One of the dynamics that has really come about in the second half of uh, 2021 is Ethereum just got so successful so quickly. The ETH price went from like $600 in January of 2021 to $4,300 six months later. Then it took a big crash. And there's this very, very strong incentive in the world of crypto for people obviously think that crypto is where you get rich really, really quickly. That's kind of what people think of our industry from the outside in. And when people look at this insane success that Ethereum has had, they want to emulate that success. They want to mimic that success. People want to get in on the ground floor of something. And I definitely think that incentive is one of the reasons why there's so many newer layer ones out there is just because they incentivize so much just new users to come into their new ecosystem because it's brand new. And something that concerns me, Vitalik, about the possibility of one single dominant rollup on Ethereum is that if that happens, instead of many, many, many rollups on Ethereum, then that concentrates wealth into that one single rollup where there could have been 5, 10, 15, 20 rollups, each with their own token, each with their own ecosystem that allowed so many people to get in on the ground floor of something that kind of answers to people's desire to, you know, kind of have exposure to the growth of these ecosystems. This has definitely been some of the big themes of the end of 2021 is people, users both want cheap blocks, but they also want to get in on the ground floor of something. Is that just like a big wrench that gets thrown in the gears of trying to make a decentralized system? Or how do you like tussle with this incentive that users have to always adopt something else? Yeah, I mean, I think like users wants to get on the ground floor, but then users also want stability, right? Like if you have a system whose entire legitimacy is based on the idea that this is a system that's uh, where you can come in and still be early, then you're just setting yourself up to be replaced by the next cycle's version of the thing that lets you get on the ground floor and be early. Um, so, but, and, and then if you want to build something that lasts, right, then like you want to build something on a base layer that has a long history of lasting and that you know is going to last for and be relevant for a long time going into the future. Um, so the, the, this kind of hybrid vision where like Ethereum is the thing that lasts a long time and where you just keep having more layer two rollups, um, pop up, like, it is an interesting hybrid approach, right? Because like there is something that you can still get on the ground floor of and there even is something that might be able to have more activist approaches to token issuance, for example. Like if you look at, say, Optimism's approach of uh, retroactive public goods funding um, that, they, that they're that they sending their uh, transaction fees into, um, that is... Um, like you basically get both that and you get the base layer that lasts a long time. And I think that is a uh, combination that is uh, really powerful. And you're right. That is not a combination that you get if you have Ethereum with a dominant rollup. And in the long term, it's not even a combination that you get inside one of these uh, 
alternatively are ones whose uh, marketing pitch is being on the ground floor today, right? Because like 10 years from now, their marketing pitch is not going to be you're on the ground floor. Um, and so looking at what's going to happen 10 years from now, right? Like what's the ecosystem? It, like it's not about what is the ecosystem that lets people get on the ground floor today. It's about what is an ecosystem that ensures that there is space for ground floors to appear 10 years from now. Um, and uh, like an ecosystem that allows for some some kind of room for pluralism is pretty much the only way to do that. Between the two versions of Ethereum's rollup future, where there's one dominant rollup versus many, many, many rollups, in your own opinion, is one more desirable? It feels like the the single rollup one is more convenient for users, but the second one is like healthier in some important way. Um Right. Like it's more fragile, more future proof. There's more opportunity for things to, to improve if things, if uh, the uh, existing approach goes bad for some reason. Whereas the first one is like, you know, if you can make something that looks like Ethereum, but it supports 10,000 TPS, then like, you know, in the short term, that is a huge amount of convenience. Vitalik, we've talked about so much on this podcast. Thank you for spending the time, the Ethereum roadmap, alternative layer ones, and, and the end game for all of these systems. And, and that is incredibly important. I think we want to end the podcast sort of where we started, but on the flip side, where we asked about your reflections on the previous year. Now I find myself kind of reflecting on the next decade and wondering, like, I think you tweeted this meme a year ago or so about the weird 20s, right? 2020s. And now we're 10% of the way through the weird 2020s, right? 10% of the way through this decade. And like I, for one, I think everyone listening want to avoid wars, global chaos, all of the things that we're seeing in kind of the news cycle as potentials, want to start solving some of the big problems in our world that just remain unsolved by the existing legacy institutions. Also, I feel like this need to make sure we don't just descend into this digital dystopia that uh, appears all around us in various forms. Do you think crypto has a role to play in the 2020s and preventing some of the worst outcomes and maybe helping to usher in some of the best possibilities? I think it really does. Um, I think uh, you know, there definitely is this really important need for um, some kind of alternative to centralized institutions, right? Um, because like we're entering into a world where like it's not disintermediation, it's hyperintermediation, right? Like every transaction like has like goes up to having lots of different actors that are in the middle. And a hyperintermediated centralized world is a world that can easily become dystopian, right? Because if there are like five different pressure points that I can lean on to stop a transaction between you and David, then like that's really friendly for anyone who wants to stop things from happening because all they have to do is just to lean on any one of those five. Um, and, but so if we want to have a future with the kind of intermediation that's necessary to, you know, get the efficiency and all of the good things that we want out of the 21st century, then like there needs, there need to be some form of the like intermediaries that cannot be corrupted that easily. And that's, I think, is what blockchains provide. It is what decentralized networks provide. Um, and, like it's it's not just theory, right? Like this is something that I think in a lot of different ways people do recognize as a reality. 
right? Like lots of people, you know, they've built startups on top of Twitter and Facebook, and then Twitter and Facebook shut down those APIs and their startups are gone in a day. Um, you know, I mentioned Argentina, like people there definitely understand a lot that, you know, sometimes the local fiat currency really can't be trusted. And uh, now maybe your local fiat currency in your country is uh, is fine today, but but it might not be fine tomorrow. And if it's not, and just in case it's not fine tomorrow, then, you know, you might want uh, to actually have some kind of alternative. Um, if, uh, you know, if you're in, engaged in um, international transactions, then, um, you know, you, you definitely don't want something that goes through like all five intermediaries that, that, um, that consist of all five of, you know, the world's major geopolitical um, actors because, uh, you know, maybe one or more of those actors have uh, very different ideas about what kind of uh, transactions deserve um, deserve to be allowed to exist than you do. Um, so then basically, yeah, you know, moving away from a you know, um, this kind of world where um, into hyper intermediation turns into like hyper choke pointization and uh, toward a world where these uh, intermediaries can uh, turn into something that is really empowering is something that I think is really necessary. But in order to have that kind of world, you know, blockchains have to actually be decentralized. Blockchains have to um, actually be credibly neutral and blockchains have to actually scale, right? So that the blockchain can actually provide those benefits uh, in practice and not just in theory. And I do think that we have a road, um, a roadmap to make that happen. And I do think that there are a lot of people who are working really hard to, and, uh, doing a better and better job of executing mm -hmm. on and uh, making that roadmap happen. Um, so I'm uh, very excited to see what uh, the future is going to bring five or 10 years from now. There you go. Crypto has made me more optimistic about the world as well. So is decentralization. And uh, so have you in today's episode, Vitalik. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on Bankless. Thank you too. Guys, a few action items for you today. We always leave you with these. The first is you can view that diagram of the Ethereum roadmap that I was referencing in this podcast we discussed with Vitalik. There'll be a link in the show notes. Also, Take a look at some of the articles that we mentioned in the podcast as well. The Endgame article is one. There's a self-destruct article mentioned. Those will be included in the show notes. We also have some previous podcasts with Vitalik on Bankless, an episode on legitimacy, an episode on coin voting, and a few others we will include in the show notes. Guys, as always, risks and disclaimers. None of this has been financial advice. Ethereum is risky. So is crypto. So is DeFi. All of it is. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west this is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Hey guys, welcome to the debrief. This is our episode after our episode with Vitalik Buterin. Uh, David, is that the fifth, sixth time Vitalik's been on? Oh gosh. Oh man, that, I was not prepared with this trivia. Yeah, sorry, I just um, <laughs> popped into my mind. It's, we've uh, had him on a lot. That's what I would say. Um, uh, we have reflections on 2021, coin voting, yeah. um, uh, roll-ups. Oh God, we've had him on so many times. Uh, I, I want to say five or six, but yeah. I'll look in the archive. We'll confirm this. Anyway, unimportance. But it's always awesome when Vitalik comes on because 
I just feel like it, he remains one of my favorite people, mm-hmm. if not my favorite person in this space. Besides you, of course, David. Likewise. My uh, co-host and partner. Um, he's just, he's, he's very deep, very wise, very considered. I don't think many have the kind of the breadth and depth that he does. Anyway, it was a great podcast. Um, the degree of specificity with which he is able to articulate Ethereum's roadmap mm-hmm. actually blows me away. Like he can go into the the deep, deep details of like, you know, very esoteric EIP. Uh, like he's very much part of Ethereum's roadmap and very much part of um, the development of this thing. And he's in the details of this in a way that uh, always surprises me. So, I mean, that first part we covered, maybe we should talk about that first. What are your thoughts on Ethereum's roadmap right now? When, when you become an expert about something, you can pull in so many different details and relate them to each other in ways that like a beginner or an in- intermediate person cannot. And I feel like when I asked about the question of like meta development, which is a, a something I kind of want to unpack further in this in this year, when I, when I talk about meta development, it's really about that like in, in 2015, Ethereum, people were talking about the possibility of ZK roll-upping the whole entire chain as a concept in 2015. We also were talking about proof of stake and sharding as like ideas and concepts. And like now with this, uh, my, my answer to where Ethereum's meta development is, is we have all these concepts and now we actually have technical details about how all of these things a, actually get implemented and B, relate to each other. Because I, I think if, if you notice that as you we progress further in Vitalik's proposed roadmap, there's a lot of like hyperlinking, like this thing relates to this thing. This is a dependency here. In order to do this, we need to do that. And this is a phase of Ethereum development where like in order to do this, we have to do this. And in order to do that, we have to be here. And this unlocks this for us. That level of detail was never, ever something we've ever been able to have before now, I would say. Um, And that's a combination of Ethereum development just getting better. There being more talented and more developers working on Ethereum and actually also putting progress behind us, actually getting stuff done, which helps us lay out a much more clear and formalized roadmap. And so... Like people that are in this industry, watching this industry be born, like as an industry, we're kind of making it up as we go. Mm -hmm. And it's really just a matter of like, can we actually concretely project out like what our action items are for the next like three years? Crypto has always been a game of like R&D in order to actually like project into the future as far as possible. And the fact that like Vitalik says that we can project um, three to six years of Ethereum's development roadmap is the longest foresight we've ever been able to have, not only in Ethereum, but as an industry. Uh, and so, and also if there's anyone listening out there, it's like, oh, like, you know, well, like I'm going to find a, a, a project or a team that can, that's mapping out a 10-year roadmap. No, 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 it doesn't work like that because your 10-year roadmap is going to change because all roadmaps in crypto change. They're like the, the fog of war in crypto is so thick. Uh, <laughs> fog of war, that's a good yeah, analogy. Yeah, and Ethereum's with its cryptographic first roadmap uh, is finally piercing through this fog of war do you know what's the the vision i had in my head i know you used to used to build um uh computers at home right um mm-hmm. basically i know you had like gpu farms and that sort of thing that's how you got into ethereum right um i used to build machines too a little bit like um as a kid um be projects that my dad and i would work on together and that's kind of the visual i had as we were talking to vitalik about this um the roadmap in particular like kind of the you know 
just the the visual of a motherboard mm-hmm. and all of these various parts that we are like you know snapping into the motherboard right and the idea that this um this world computer is being built like in the way it's being built is so incredible to me like completely open source from mm-hmm. all corners of the world at the very beginning of the development of ethereum it's like there were some concepts that didn't have clear execution ability, right? It's like we want scalability while preserving decentralization. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we think there's this thing called sharding. There's, we want in theory, we know we can do it. it. Yeah, in theory, completely unknown. Yeah, and then and then and then like um, we want this thing called proof of stake, right? Because we think it's more economically efficient, you know, better way to, um, to, to essentially provide the same guarantees that Bitcoin does, but we don't exactly know how to do it. And so like, how are we going to do it? Well, as an open source community, we're going to build this thing piece by piece. Mm-hmm. And the concept of assembling a new computer, like a new, you know, chip, a new CPU, a new motherboard in that way, in this distributed fashion without clear like knowing exactly how you're going to build it you just know what needs to be built and um you know vitalik has been a brain behind this but um he hasn't been the person pulling all of the strings here right it's totally been this massive worldwide community organization open source project that has brought this as far as it's it's come and that to me was just um it's so fascinating i've never seen a project like this Mm-hmm. Um, I've never witnessed it firsthand and it's like a multi-year thing. Like I've been involved with lots like software development projects, that sort of thing. And usually you have a clear set of requirements and, you know, the, you know, team builds and iterates against this, but like, it's, um, very, it's still very top down, right. It's not very like bottom up and just the way this thing is constructed as well as part of the, the meta development story here. And uh, it's just, uh, it just struck me in talking to Vitalik is like, how cool is this that we get to be part of the early stages of this? And like you and I believe that this world computer that's being built is going to be one of the most important institutions, like digital institutions mm-hmm. of this century. Like that's how important meta institution it's the right. That, yeah. It's a meta institution too. And that's how important Ethereum is and Bitcoin and some of this other things that we're building. Um, so yeah, I feel very just privileged to be here, to be honest, and to witness this thing taking shape is um, is truly incredible. Yeah, it's it's quite immaculate, right? Um, I, I think immaculate is, is a great word. There's the, uh, remember the whole loot phenomenon where people would just, people birth loot and they're like, all right, like. Now you guys build it. Now you guys build it. Like the reason why like that doesn't fall flat on its face when it feels like it should is because there's actual actual precedent behind that strategy. Yeah. And that precedent is is a combination of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah, um, totally. And, and Ethereum even more so just because of how much more development Ethereum needed. It's like, all right, like Vitalik released this like yellow paper in the world, into the world. And he's like, all right, world, like I need help building this thing. Uh, and the world answered. Uh, and that's why that's the Ethereum client teams and, and Ethereum researchers and, and all that stuff. It's, it's an incredible story. Um, should we get into like some of the specifics here? So like, what do you think of, um, I, I, okay. So I had somebody, um, tweet out recently when I was talking about Ethereum's layer two roadmap and, uh, Ethereum scalability strategy. And the tweet said something like, did Vitalik and the Ethereum foundation just get lucky here? Like, was it happenstance that layer twos worked out 
for them. And that caused me to kind of like, you know, consider. So basically the idea that um, going in, Ethereum really didn't have a scalability strategy, let's say. I mean, there was this concept called sharding, but like, how do you actually achieve it, right? This was some of the main critique of Bitcoiners. And then it almost felt like over the last 18 months or so that um, from one vantage point, Ethereum kind of got lucky with layer twos. Like it seems like you can build um, EVM compatible general purpose layer twos on top of Ethereum. And this this wasn't um, obvious at the very beginning when Ethereum promised you know, massive scalability. So what do you think of that question? Did Vitalik and, and crew just get lucky here? I think... Um... I think if we reround back to 2017 and 2018, and like if you asked me, how is Ethereum going to scale? I would absolutely say sharding. And it's like, oh yeah, how do we get super fast block times with super low transaction fees? My answer would be sharding. And I think in the back of my mind, I kind of figured that like, you know, maybe that's, I didn't know enough. 2017, 2018, I was a crypto novice, right? But And I didn't know enough. So maybe in the back of my mind, I'd be like, well, can that really, can that really go from just like this small niche blockchain to supporting the whole world just with sharding. And maybe in the back of my mind, I was like, no, maybe I didn't know, but I wouldn't, I didn't really know. I didn't really know. I think when, you, if you ask a question um, and to your point, what that means is that like sharding wasn't ever going to do it. And I think maybe if we asked Vitalik, maybe he wouldn't have known either back in that, that early, like would sharding be able to scale to the whole entire world uh, unknown. Um, but I think now when you ask like the question, would, did Ethereum get lucky with layer twos? Um, well, having surface area for luck is also really important. Yes. And so, no, I would say, because layer twos are a blockchain agnostic construction. They can go anywhere. Um, and all Ethereum has to be is be open to that. And that is what Ethereum is designed for, is to be maximally open, maximally expressive, so that any sort of crypto thing that is useful can come and be built on it. That's what the EVM for. It's a, going back to your, your uh, motherboard thing, the EVM is a universal serial bus, a USB port. It's like, oh, you built the thing, plug it in. Uh, and, and so, no, it, it didn't get lucky. It's been designed to be able to absorb all good technology. Well, that, that, that's, that was kind of my insight after, after kind of thinking about this for a bit. It's like, we really create our own serendipity, don't we? I mean, use the term uh, surface area, right? For like, you know, so Vitalik high level sharding was going to be a path and, and high level, that's kind of right. I mean, we're doing sharding, but like all the serendipity, all of the um, research, like, and kind of the, 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 the roadmap that has resulted from that could not have been foreseen, but Ethereum kind of embraced a culture of openness to these sorts of things. I mean, the amount of work that went into um, the Ethereum research forms, those are like highly active and highly useful forms. Those were built out during the early days. Also the social layer, let's be open to um, this experimentation, this this creation. Our high level goals are a decentralized uh, trust computer for the world. Now, how do we incorporate the best ideas and build that out? That's all been not luck, but almost designed, yet it creates the conditions for the serendipity, for this luck that led to the roadmap that we have today. So that's been fascinating to see also. And it's, you know, I, I think that rule can be applied elsewhere. It's like, yeah, there is definitely a concept uh, of luck out there, right? But there's also um, like equally the truth that, that we oftentimes create our own serendipity. We create our own surface area to sort of attract these lucky events. That's one thing it's like, 
that's one thing I love about Twitter is I feel like it's sort of a, a serendipity creation engine. I mean, at, at some way you and I met over Twitter, yeah. didn't we? Like it was very much like you, I saw your writings, like it was a Twitter sort of interaction and you know, the entire bankless podcast, everything like you know, we've done together probably wouldn't have come to be without that surface la- layer for serendipity. So there's, there's also a meta lesson there uh, that I took away from this. Yeah, I remember the shout out to Michael Wong, who first coined the term or implanted the term in my brain, luck surface area. Yeah, uh, that's you, good. You can optimize for luck. That is something. Yeah, isn't that weird? For. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely a, a life lesson. Okay, so we've got this roadmap. Um, we've got the merge coming, which is awesome. We've got the surge. So, so this is all related to our modular blockchain thesis, right? It's going to supercharge rollups. The merge is coming next year. I think the the surge is probably going to be like a 2023 thing, mm-hmm. don't you think? I mean, we might sneak some EIPs in there that that sort of start to execute on the early stages of the surge, but I don't think we'll see sharding, data sharding until 2023. I didn't want to ask Vitalik about dates because that's just a he wouldn't want to have, he wouldn't have wanted you to. No. Yeah, it's kind of a gotcha question. If, if like, you noticed on his roadmap, there were zero, there were zero dates. There were zero, zero dates. There were very yeah. it was just like, percentage completion, if you will. Right. Yeah. Um, so we get the surge, and then we've got some of these other things like the verge and the purge that you know, some of these things are um developing in tandem, I suppose. But Vitalik's take was I thought this was interesting. We're 50% done now. And if we got the merge and the surge stuff together you know, not calling it a day with Ethereum, but like, he feels like that would be enough to like keep Ethereum uh, as a trust compute layer for the entire world. Like even just two of these things on the roadmap would be enough to kind of call it a success. Not fully successful, but do you know what I mean? And I thought that was an interesting observation. Like we don't maybe actually need the verge and the purge and the splurge and some of these other things in order to have Ethereum do what it needs to do for the world. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think I think that is pretty pretty interesting. Uh, having the merge and this and the surge happen, and Vitalik saying like, "All right, that that could that could be enough. That could do it. That might be the history future of crypto. If Ethereum calcifies after that, it wouldn't be the worst case in the world." Um, and obviously, Vitalik has way more insight than I do. But when I see all of these urges, these one through five urges, merge, surge, verge, purge, splurge. The theme that I'm seeing is this is Ethereum or crypto economics, really cryptography scaling more and more and more to the whole world. This is a, this is a scalability plan and not, it's not just uh, transaction scalability. It's not just throughput. It's not just cheapness of transactions. That's one version of scalability. That's the more uh, like obvious and more like, you know, socially referred version of scalability, but these other ones, stateless clients, eliminating historical data, and then all the extras in the, the splurge, that's social scalability. That is how do you scale the blockchain to, in order to replicate itself and put it on as many computers as possible, as easily as possible, and as securely as possible, which is a different kind of scalability. Uh, but in my mind, it's actually the much more important version of scalability. Uh, uh, and Bitcoiners uh, lean into this a lot where like Bitcoin, the blockchain doesn't scale very well. It's got very slow block times with very limited data caps, but it is socially scalable. Bitcoin can replicate itself. It's easy to copy. It's it's secure to download. 
Uh, and so there, there's this other component of scalability. And so every single one of these things in my mind is increasing Ethereum's social scalability. It, it can, as a blockchain, as an ecosystem, as, an, as a, an organism, it is more scaled to envelop more of the world with every one of these steps. One of those steps includes actual data scalability, actual data throughput, but that is just only one of the many components that make a blockchain a, a scaled blockchain. And I think especially with these last ones, the verge, the purge, and the, and the uh, splurge, these are things that like all the other alternative layer one chains, I don't think that they will put attention towards them until they become problems. And that's kind of the big difference between like Ethereum meta development and the development on any other chain. We've noticed that like a lot of the other chains are short-term thinking and that they need to gain traction right here, right now, because they are in the alt layer one competition. They are in, in that um, that crucible of competition. And so they don't have the luxury of being able to look out into long-term and like thinking about eliminating historical debt or, uh, and granted, they might actually have less because they're newer. Um, but uh, it, it's still like stateless clients is something that is not, again, Ethereum specific. It's for everyone, right? And also pruning and, and state expiry and all that stuff. These are not things, these are things that only Ethereum is as an ecosystem is, is looking at from, from far, as far as I can tell. Uh, and it's really just optimizing Ethereum to be far more scalable in, in ways that, and because Ethereum has that luxury of uh, being in the lead with regards to development, because it, it has that foresight and it has that developer attention to be able to expand over the horizons of the short term. That's kind of my take there. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more with uh, the alt layer ones conversation, because I thought that was a very interesting point in the conversation. And it strikes me as you were talking, David, like alt layer ones need Ethereum a lot, <laughs> like much more than Ethereum needs alt layer ones. Ethereum wrote their roadmap. This is half of this podcast was a roadmap for alternative layer ones, who, yes. whichever ones, whichever ones want to take it. Well, it's, it, and it's interesting to me that many of the alt-layer ones actually use Ethereum technology, right? So like, you know, Avalanche, you know, Binance Chain, they're all using Geth under the hood yeah. for a lot of this and, and making their own tweaks. So, uh, but like a success, it's, it's funny because oftentimes these are painted as like very competitive, but they need a successful Ethereum, right? Even like think about the roll-up technology mm-hmm. that exists right now. So like if they want a Starkware to start deploying on a, you know, Arbitrum or or Solana or something like the reason Starkware is what it is today is because of Ethereum, mm-hmm. right? So it's mainly that that ecosystem that is per- anyway. So let, let's talk a little bit about alt layer ones though, um, because this was an interesting point in the conversation, and uh, maybe I want to just dig into the to the heart of it, which is uh, Vitalik's Endgame blog post, which um, basically states that it's possible that um, big blockchains, so the high performance layer one chains and Ethereum long-term might end up in a similar place, right? At least the ones that decide to, uh, you know, revert back and build in some decentralization into their protocols to the extent that they can. Um, Vitalik called this protocol fortification, which I think in and of itself is an interesting term. Protocol armor is uh, protocol what, armor. That's right. I said yeah. fortification, but yeah. protocol armor. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, like um, these alt layer ones, like might be on the same path in a way. And this is similar to, I guess, an insight maybe you could say, or an argument that Suzu from Three Arrows Capital makes, right? Which, you know, which is basically like, hey, um, all of these chains will converge. And I think you made the point in the podcast. You just said like big blockchains are choosing a different point 
mm-hmm. in the uh, scalability trilemma, and they're starting from that point. And some will stay there. Some will just fake decentralization. And ultimately, I'm going to use the term very broadly. I don't like this term, but like ultimately kind of exit scam, not achieve the vision of what a blockchain is supposed to do. It's just going to remain a centralized. Successful in the short and major. Yeah, exactly. But some might be able to pivot and start moving more towards the the other angle in the uh, in the triangle here towards decentralization. And in fact, Vitalik kind of put together like if I was you know king of these chains, here's what I would do. Here's sort of a, an approach I would take to make them more decentralized. But the interesting outcome is all of these chains could end up in the same place where you have block production that is centralized uh, and um, block validation, block verification that is decentralized. That could be a possible outcome. In which case, we sort of ask the question to Vitalik, like, well, then what of it? Like, are these are are these better paths to take? Why not start with a big bat, right. you know, block approach where you're trying to onboard the world and you just trade off decentralization for performance and then double back and try to build in more decentralization, more protocol armor later. What was your take on that part of the conversation? Yeah, Vitalik said that uh, he's skeptical that some of these chains even actually do care about decentralization. He said they they just pay lip service to decentralization. Um, and so my take on this is that that could be a very valid outcome where uh, Ethereum and these alt layer ones are all in a race to get to the same end zone and into the same end game, and the, which is what Vitalik's article was more or less about if you read through the lines. Um, but what that would require is that some of these chains actually do care about decentralization. Like they actually do have to care about that. And Vitalik said that like in, in this podcast, and we've said it a number of times before, is this whole entire space is built on decentralization. And like that's, I, I think that's the only belief that I hold in crypto that I will not ever budge on. And that's your maxi belief? That's my maxi belief, right? Like it, this whole thing is based on decentralization. And if you disagree with me, then we cannot see ever eye to eye and I will die on that hill. Um, and that hill does not belong to Ethereum. Ethereum does not control or own or co-opt the concept of decentralization. That is a concept. Decentralization is a concept for everyone to uphold if they so choose. But in order to actually get to this end state, these alt layer ones that have compromised on decentralization have to uncompromise on it. Right? <laughs> That's yeah. the hard part. Isn't That's it? the hard part. And and then and then it turns into a story of like say say we have three different layer ones. One is Ethereum and, and two other alt layer ones, and they all got to this end game state in different ways. Now at that point, it's a competition of how fast did they get there. And the story of how they got there, how they navigated the waters to design their blockchain to maximize for all three uh, points on the blockchain trilemma. And the story of how it got there, I think is really crucially important. And I think that is still what will always separate Ethereum from everything else, because Ethereum started by compromising on scale and not decentralization, and others compromise on decentralization and not scale. And I think when we exist inside of an ecosystem that is built entirely on decentralization, of all the three points on the blockchain trilemma, decentralization is the one that you do not compromise on at all. Or I do, th- I do, I do totally agree. I, I think decentralization is the hard part, right? It's you're kind of asking like um, a big government to get smaller, mm-hmm. which is always doesn't very difficult like that. Yeah, it doesn't work like that unless there's some kind of a revolution or an authoritarian regime to like convert to uh democracy right like to, that to generally doesn't that. happen decentralization is political yes whereas scalability and throughput and data throughput is technical totally and agree 
political fights are way harder than technical fights. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so that's, that's why there's like this very much kind of this, like it's very strong rejection of centralization in Ethereum because it's like this slippery slope thing and people in Ethereum, people kind of know it, right? Like, no, 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 we can't compromise on decentralization because then it turns into a bunch of political fights left and right. We can compromise on scalability because that is a technical argument that we can reason about without having to worry about politics. And yes. that's why, that's why uh, compromising on uh, scalability is so much easier than compromising on decentralization. Right, which is why I think many of the alt layer ones eventually like just won't. They won't try to follow Ethereum towards that uh, that corner of the trilemma towards decentralization. You know, because one, it's politically infeasible. It's very difficult to do, and also requires like a deep culture shift mm -hmm. at the layer zero. And then number two, like why do that? Ethereum already has that market cornered. What I think will probably be easier for many of these alt layer ones is to use the the other tactic, which is like basically. Eh, why does decentralization matter that much? Right. And that thing decentralization. Right. But but there's also a case for that too, right? So we, we, when we asked the question about decentralization alt layer ones, Vitalik uh, said, hey, what do you think? When I was in Argentina, what do you think is the most popular crypto tool, mm -hmm. crypto solution that average citizens so are L1. using? He used, he used the term L1, yeah. Yeah, he did. And it, it was like Binance. Yeah. Not Binance chain. It was like uh, actual exchange. Is the Binance the exchange? And so that is the argument from a centralization perspective. Uh, it's just like, you know, basically like users don't care about decentralization. They just care about some features that will make their lives better. Mm -hmm. And I totally understand that. And I totally get that. But it strikes me as like, okay, then we're building very different things. Like categorically, these are different, you know, end state games. And in bankless terminology, phraseology, it'd be more like you're building a fintech thing, okay? Uh, you're building a new bank, a neo bank. What we're trying to build is a decentralized bankless system for the world. And these are separate categories of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but what do you make of that point? Like high level, users don't care about decentralization. That is often the other alt layer one argument. Right, it, it kind of begs the question, like a lot of people will say, uh, shout out Tasha, will say that users don't care about decentralization. Uh, and so then why use a crypto system at all? <laughs> just, just go use finance. Like we actually don't need crypto to do all the things that exist on crypto. You can just fake it on a centralized platform. So wh why even bother with any amount of decentralization then? Um, maybe that's the slippery slope fallacy of like, you know, like, no, 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 no. There is a Goldilocks zone of decentralization, centralization. And rather than having one entity, it's best that we have 20 entities. That's the optimum level. I, I just don't agree with that Goldilocks zone though. Right. And I, I just, I think people are mistaking um, real layer ones. They're conflating real layer ones with applications, right? So Binance would not have even been possible without real layer ones, without Bitcoin and Ethereum as you know, token economies, basically, right? And so the fact that Binance exists as an app is because of these decentralized systems that, that you know, came before it and that underpin it. You can't build Ethereum on Binance, mm -hmm. but you can build Binance as an app on Ethereum. Right. And of I think is. of which it is, right? And I, so I think sometimes some of these alternative layer ones, like for instance, uh, to me, Terra comes to mind. Terra to me looks a lot more like a fintech type of um, solution than it does a layer one, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it has like 
um, DPoS style validators, the Cosmos chain, right? It's like m- maybe it it's across the spectrum, somewhere between you know fully fintech and centralized and a layer one. But it's not in the same category as something like a Bitcoin is, is trying to be and something like an Ethereum is trying to be. And I think they're often conflated. And the reason they're conflated is because you kind of want to be valued. You want the performance, the scalability performance of an application, but you want to be valued like a, like layer. a, like a layer one. You want to be valued as a percentage of Ethereum. So the narratives get conflated in that way. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting discussion. What else you got? One thought I have is like a possible, a very possible 2020s decade is one of increased strictness, the three-letter agencies coming after crypto protocols. We already saw this with Terra and Do Kwan. Uh, and um, just like imagine just a, a more hostile regulatory environment for all of crypto. Ethereum as this maximally decentralized settlement layer, and also talking about the concept of protocol armor, one of the best protocol armors for some of these centralized layer ones that look and feel like apps, like you said, if those if they start getting uh, attacked by the nation state, by regulators, uh, and say, hey, you got to shut down your stuff, and that actually does work because they're weak towards that kind of attack because they are centralized, the best protocol armor for these things is to turn into a roll-up. A roll-up is protocol armor for yeah. anything that's centralized. And so, hey, our, our, like is for Terra. Terra is like a synthetic asset platform. That's a, that's a layer one. But if it's weak to external political attacks, it can use an Ethereum rollup as protocol armor to shield its state from anything, right? And so it just settles on Ethereum. It rolls up its state and puts it in a bundle and settles it on the L1. And like Ethereum is this like safe zone. Did you ever play like tag in when you were young? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's like like once you put the state on Ethereum, it's safe. Like it's safe. Can't touch it. Can't go. And and so like the only thing that's actually at risk is the next block, which is only one block uh, and everything else is safe. And and so that is protocol armor. If we do get into a very hostile regulatory environment, I would imagine it would make sense, a logical conclusion for all all of these at-risk centralized platforms to use Ethereum as protocol armor. I just, I I agree with that. And I I also think in general, we have kind of um, bull market goggles on with all of these like alternative layer ones. So I think what, what could also happen, another driver to convert alt layer ones into roll-ups is uh, a bear market, mm-hmm. you know, to be honest, right? So one advantage that, I don't know why, but people often overlook of a, a layer two is it doesn't have to pay for network security. Right. And it doesn't have to fund its military budget. Which is so expensive. <laughs> It's so, so expensive. expensive. Every L1 is to fund, I, to fund security is the most expensive thing you can do. I just looked today. Solana pays $18 million a day mm-hmm. on issuance, on its security budget, basically, right? $18 million a day, okay? On Ethereum, it's, there's, there's no maintenance costs. Mm-hmm. You basically pay per usage, and that's based on users actually paying the economic fees, the taxes to Ethereum, as it were. So none of this is obvious when we have our uh, bull market goggles, but like during the bear market, when token prices go down and people are like, oh my God, we're inflating so much money. Look at how much, remember this happened with Ethereum? Look at how much we're paying miners. Look at how much we're paying uh, our validators for this system. That could convert some to take a uh, a roll-up based approach where you basically get the military budget from Mm -hmm. Ethereum uh, for free at cost. There's, There's no cost to that. So that, that's something that, that's been in the back of my mind too. 
anything else? Any other takeaways from this episode, David? I think just a really great episode to kick off the year. Yeah, man. It's going to be a good year. Really excited about it. We'll have Vitalik on a few more times, I'm sure. You know, he just always writes great things. And then we're like, hey, you know, you should come on and talk about them. Yeah. And he's like, yes, I will. (laughs) Yeah. So this is no exception. Uh, First episode of the year, guys. First debrief of the year. Thanks for hanging with us. Bankless subscribers, we appreciate you. We'll talk to you soon.